Everybody knows the Rorschach test. It's the inkblot test where someone shows you, well, an inkblot, and then you lie about what the picture looks like to you because they all look like boners, but you're pretty sure you're not supposed to say that. Well, there's a term for this phenomenon. The seeing of meaningful images and otherwise random patterns thing, not the they all look like boners thing. It's called pareidolia, and yes, I had to look that up. I can't pass a Rorschach test. You think I know words like pareidolia off the top of my head? Anyway, the reason I looked it up is because I knew there had to be a word for it beyond the confines of clinical analysis. Because you see this other places, from cumulus clouds, to your grandmother's overly intricate wallpaper, to the United States Constitution, everybody can see something different when they look at it. And while this same thing can certainly apply to film, how many times have you talked to someone about a movie you just watched together and wondered if they were even watching the same movie? Today's film might seem like an unlikely candidate. You'd think that a cinematic Rorschach test would be a lot more abstract than an 80s action romance about hotshot naval aviators, but a lot of the success this movie found came from it being a fairly blank canvas. Sure, there's a plot and character arcs and emotional stakes, all the stuff a movie needs, but when they put all of these basic elements together, everyone who watched it saw something a little different. It's a mindless popcorn chomper for some people, and the movie that determined an entire career path for others. It's everything a straight cis male should aspire to, as seen in the gayest summer blockbuster of all time. It's softcore porn and softercore jingoism, aw shucks militarism dipped in charmingly toxic masculinity, all while being the ultimate date movie that also appealed to six-year-old boys across America. It's all of these things, and none of them, accidentally and at the same time with equal intention. The contradictions are endless. The only things most people can generally agree on is that it's big, and sexy, and cool, and fun, and awesome, and the soundtrack goddamn slaps. And also, like any good Rorschach test, it all kind of looks like boners. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So come feel the need, the need for speed, with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, and special guest and regular research contributor Rich Stevens, as our egos write checks that our bodies can't cash, while discussing Tony Scott's iconic 1986 tale of beefcakes fighting for democracy in the waning days of the Cold War that shot Tom Cruise into mega stardom. Top Gun. Call it in. It's danger close. I feel the need. The need for speed. Ow! Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners, Katie and Liam. And today we are here to talk about a very famous 1986 film by director Tony Scott called Top Gun. And we have a special guest here today. Who who we bring on, Liam? We brought on my old friend. I don't know <laughs> if you guys know him. My old friend, Rich Stevens, 
in his first podcast appearance ever. This is the introducing credit, that good credit that you want at the start of your career where we know you're going places. Right. Rich and I had a, a very nice dinner at a Permani Brothers down in the Strip District once. And uh, it was just the violin swelled. It was it was like they started singing this magic moment and everything was just great. This magic moment. So <laughs> Rich, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. You sure they didn't sing They Lost Love and Feeling, Liam? I mean, uh, uh, it's right there. It's right, oh, there. right there. Thank you, Rich. I couldn't remember the title. I was like, low hanging fruit. <laughs> Rich is a regular researcher for the show. He has turned in, uh, at this point, at least probably a dozen papers on different films. Uh, and we've used his research, whether we have remembered to give him credit or not, but we try. And, uh, he kind of proposed to us to do this because after Maverick or Top Gun Maverick released in theaters, they were uh, putting out the, what was it, the 40th anniversary for this or just shy of, but they were releasing this on Blu-ray for the first time, the original Top Gun. And so Rich had a nice proposal drawn up for us to do a double episode, uh, which we'll get to the sequel eventually. We deemed that it would just seemed appropriate to have him on as a guest. So welcome again, Rich. And we'll tell you a little bit more about Rich's background later. He does, he kind of has some experience flying F-14s. So we'll, we'll tell you about that later. But, uh, for starters, we are going to pass it off to Katie with our mission briefing. Top Gun is the epitome of 80s action films with its epic soundtrack that sold millions of copies during the summer of 1986. And it propelled Tom Cruise from being a successful actor to a bona fide movie star. Critics didn't much care for the movie part of the film, with the mediocre dialogue and predictable plot, but were highly impressed with the masterfully shot scenes of aerial combat. Audiences, on the other hand, loved the movie, and it topped box offices for the entire year of 1986 with over $325 million, which is an impressive feat considering the other films released that year included Aliens and Platoon. It also went on to be a huge hit in the home video market. And this was the first movie that was released at a consumer-aimed price point. Before this, films have been released on VHS for like a hundred or more per tape. The still insane price in 1986-87 when it came out of like $27. But this is the first that was geared towards the home audience rather than rental stores. It had four Academy Award nominations, sound editing, best sound, film editing, and its only win with the best song for Take My Breath Away. With a guest on this episode, and this is such a well-known film, I'm going with my old standby here of what is everyone's experience with this movie. I think it's definitely varied here, so. Right. Rich, you want to go yeah, first? Yeah, so I didn't see this when it first came out in theaters. The first time I saw this was, I think I was in high school, like 16 or 17. I was in a um, ROTC unit in high school, and somebody found out that I hadn't seen it, and it was like, oh, you have to go see it. We're watching this like this weekend kind of thing. So my first viewing was actually on laser discs. Nice. Somebody had this in the nineties on those big laser discs. <laughs> that's amazing. And you know, I think I was typical sixteen, jaded. You know, I was like, okay, that's decent, but there's so many things that are just kind of weird about it that it didn't really click with me until I saw it much later and everything. And and I had always been into the flight sims and, and military aviation and stuff like that growing up playing things. So you know, I was the rivet counter that when I first saw it, I'll admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, over time, I got to like really just you know. You end up liking it. You end up loving it. <laughs> it becomes one of those go-tos you always have to have to watch once a year, you know? Well, awesome. 
Dan? Yeah, let's see. I think similar to Rich, I was born in 83, so I wouldn't have seen this in theaters, nor when it first came out. I probably saw it in the early 90s. Definitely a staple. One of those films I grew up with with my dad, for sure. My dad was a super, super aviation nerd. Tons of aviation encyclopedias, like military aircraft, all that stuff. He's a plane dad. Yeah, I was more into the animal books and stuff in terms of what I read when I was a kid. But I have to admit that I'm probably on the list of people who I think I initially did sign up for the Navy. But then when I decided to go to college for a year, that's where I met my first Marines. And then I decided to go Marine Corps. So I almost was a statistic of those people who joined the Navy because of this movie. I ended up joining the Marine Corps. But I would definitely say this movie is what got me interested in military flying, which is how I eventually ended up becoming an air traffic controller. So yeah, this movie had a huge influence on my life. And the soundtrack especially, I had on cassette tape and just... I can't think of another soundtrack that I played as much as this one when I was a kid, just on repeat. I mean, just flip that tape, side A, side B. It has gone platinum at this point nine times. Nine times? Nine times. <clears throat> Which is insane. Yeah, there's no denying that this soundtrack is just fucking slaps. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was kind of my experience. Oh, and... One last thing I'll say that's related to both my dad and the soundtrack. When I was a kid, my dad used to record a lot of um, music, like just by plugging in the stereo or whatever he had directly into the television and then recording or into the VCR maybe and recording it directly off of it. And the cool thing about this soundtrack is that when he recorded the Top Gun theme, which I ended up having later growing up on a cassette tape, it had all of the F-14s like turning their afterburners on and taking off. And it is sick. Like, I wish that was on That's the actual soundtrack because it sounds so much cooler. And that is the tape that I walked around with in the 90s all the time as a kid. So props to my dad for recording shit straight off the VCR. It was amazing. Uh, Liam, what about you? Um, well, my history with this movie is not as long and storied as most people's, I think. I was born in 82. So again, did not catch this one in theaters. I did not see this until the mid to late 90s, middle late 90s. I was in high school and I saw this on VHS. I rented it once because it was one of those movies that I was like, I probably should have seen this already. I feel like I'm not like missing out on something, but like there's a cultural thing here that I'm I'm missing references on. So like I already, I'd probably already seen hot shots about 20 times by the time I saw Top Gun. How dare you? That was going to be my question was, did you see hot shots before you saw Top Gun? That's way before, way before. <laughs> Just Amazing. so many times. I was That's... like, man, this movie's biting a lot of hot shots rhymes here. Over It's just, whew. man, even the throwing things into the ocean that are meaningful, man, this movie is... <laughs> Oh, yeah. It was hot shots and yep. royalties. Great. But yeah, and so I saw it, and that was good for me. And this is my second time seeing it. So, you know, let's roll. Okay. We'll find out at the yeah. end. <laughs> uh, and last but very much not least, Katie, what about you? So, funny enough to follow up on the, the Liam's intro there. I watched Hot Shots <laughs> when we were going to watch. No, it's you'll get it. We were going to watch Hot Shots or the show 
in our first five or whatever. And I was talking to my husband and he goes, well, you've seen Top Gun, right? And I was like, no, I've never oh, seen Oh, that's Gun. right. And he was like, we can't watch Hot Shots unless you've seen Top Gun. Like, you have to watch it first. Otherwise, you're not going to get any of the that's jokes. That's untrue. Unless you're Good looking out, Paul. Good looking out. And I, I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So we watched it. And I'll tell you, I... I made it to the volleyball scene and was like, I need so many more drinks for this. <laughs> so I vaguely remembered the end of it. And then I watched it uh, just a couple hours ago for this. And yeah, it definitely, I, I definitely had a moment where I, I knew that, you know, Goose's death is coming up. And I was like, I wonder if this is going to have, is this a scene where it happens over the base? And then his wife comes running out and freaking out. And I was like, wait, no, that's hot shots. Oh, shit. <laughs> that's terrible. So I definitely Why, thank had. you, Andre. I'll have the veal piccata. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But this, I will say it was much more meaningful in in Top Gun versus Hot Shots. Obviously. This is so bad. So. I was like, I was watching Top Gun the first time, and I'm sitting there going, like, is that the guy from ER? <laughs> oh my god! Right, <laughs> that's right? the only thing I knew Anthony Edwards from. Yes, yes, I, I, and he looks very young, and as does Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer. They they all are very yeah. Well, and Anthony this. Edwards went completely bald while keeping his hair on the side, so his like in his forties and fifties look is so different from this. Yeah. Oh, he was definitely rocking a cul-de-sac in ER. Yeah, yeah, which would have been like <laughs> yeah, not even which ten is, years which is after this. Fine, just very different. Yes. <laughs> Rich, uh, you're not only our honored guest on this one, but you're also kind of sort of the expert. Why don't you tell us a little bit, start with your uh, F-14 Tomcat flying experience and go from there and tell us why you were brought on for this episode. Yeah, that's that's way too much. It's a little uh, st- stolen valor there, I feel like. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all just... Um, just flight sims. Um, I'm an avid uh, DCS player. Anybody familiar with that? It stands for Digital Combat Simulator. It's a flight sim. They have a lot of um, high fidelity modules, different airplanes that you can fly. Um, one of them, of course, being the F-14 because it's the sexiest airplane out there. And um, yeah, I've flown oh, a lot of it. Okay. The team that um, actually builds the module for the game, builds the plane up. They went to like a bunch of museum pieces, recorded a bunch of sound and like digital scanned a lot of uh, items in the cockpit. So that way it looks, it's very, very, you know, looks legit, sounds legit. You can get on this YouTube video, several people that are former um, F-14 pilots and Rios that have flown it and, you know, in, in the game and say, yeah, it's as close as you can get without actually doing it in real life kind of thing. So that's where my experience comes from. First of all, uh, before we get into all the technical stuff, well, I think we'll probably just sprinkle it throughout the episode. But what's a Rio for the listeners? Yeah, Rio is the uh, it's the radar intercept officer. That's the guy in the back seat. That's Goose. That's the guy that has to run the radar. Thank you. I was wondering. I was like, why is there a second guy here? Like, there's got to be a reason. And I assumed it was like, well, because it's a lot to ask yeah. one pilot. It's a lot to ask your pilot to both fly this in super intense airplane and yeah. well, do I'm all sure the other stuff. You know, he's the R2 unit. Yeah, he's the R2 unit. He's the R2? Oh, my yeah. God. With a okay. little more charisma. Well, depending on your opinion. but A lot more charisma. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dan, Dan, are you yeah. fantastic? Modern aircraft. It's a little easier, though. There's um, electronics that can do a lot of the deciphering for you. But the F-14 was designed primarily in the 60s. So, 
it's a lot older aircraft. So the radar is, it's very right. much just like a B scope back there. And it's not just machinery and computers interpreting signals for you. It's a lot of, of manual <laughs> doing it. So it, you need it to full time job. Whereas in a single seat F 18 or F 16, the, the pilot can, can do a lot of that himself because it's, it's not as, it's not as taxing. Right. Well, I was going to say in Iron Eagle, the person in the back seat had like controls that they were able to like fly from the back seat. Was that, was yeah. that bullshit or is that just the difference between the F-16 that's, and the F-14? That's interesting. So, <laughs> so as you, Iron Eagle's come out after Iron Eagle, correct? So I don't know what, what you guys talked about there exactly, but. All good things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Liam. Just lie. It's fine. No one There's very know. few good things you could say about it. So. <laughs> They're hard to believe. I mentioned all three of them. Yeah, all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to it, I'm done. <laughs> but, yes, um, exactly. So since exactly. the Air Force pulled out of Iron Eagle because having the plot of kids to, you know, being able to access military hardware on an Air Force base. Sneak in to Air <laughs> Force bases. Good. Yeah. They filmed a lot of it in yeah. Israel. And so those F-16s were actually a different F-16 in the U.S. inventory. They're a two-seater. They have a little different um, avionics. They have different fuel tanks on them because it's a bigger area they're expecting to cover. Right. They see more action. <laughs> okay. Rich, you say you don't want to steal Valor, but according to Iron Eagle, <laughs> you have all the all the sim time that you need to go over and, and raid another That's country right. by yourself. Right. Mount yeah, a rescue yeah. mission. Anyone who's, who's, who's flight simmed um, with me will can, uh, can attest that air-to-air air refueling is very hard. <laughs> And um, he just does yeah. it like two or three times without oh even God. thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's crazy to me because I've worked with F-18s, just working them down on final and talking to them a lot. And they're definitely the hotshot pilots. P- pardon my ignorance, Dan. Are F-18s more like- modern? They're the current. So like the, it's early 90s. If, well, if I'm not jour. mistaken, I think the F-18 was the one that they flew in Independence Day. Yes. If my yes. memory yes. serves, because I was a big Independence Day nerd, as we all know. Yeah. Yes. I don't know shit about planes, but I know a lot about <laughs> Independence Day. Right. So the Blue Angels currently fly the F-18s for another, okay. maybe another decade. I, I, I imagine they're working on phasing them yeah, out. Yeah, they just transitioned to the um, Super Hornet, like, Last year, two years ago, like right. during the pandemic, they transitioned to the, the souped-up version of the 18. Right. But that's a plane that's been around since, what, the mid-80s, yeah. early 80s, yeah. something like that? And again, like a lot of these tactical fighters, and even with helicopters, it's like you get the, it's like A model, B, C, D, F, and they come out with other iterations that are souped up. They have better engines, better avionics, just generally speaking. So you can keep... But it's almost like you get, you know, you get your regular PlayStation when it releases. And then like a couple years later, they're like, OK, here's Pro the version. PlayStation yeah. Plus mm-hmm. or or whatever, like where we don't necessarily it's not necessarily a full jump to a new model, but it's just like a really great expansion on. The right. Which, model. as you can imagine, when a factory is actually producing a airframe the more you can keep the airframe the same but then you're like plugging in new avionics or attaching a new engine it's like you can still keep producing that plane for a long time yeah the fabrication cost exactly as opposed to a completely new model so yeah so that's what you'll see it is crazy to think like a lot of the f-18s i saw were two-seater where you have a front and back pilot and the audience can crucify me if I'm wrong here, but I want to say that both those people are actually qualified as pilots and have dual sets of controls so they can take over. I could be wrong about that because the Rio is a F-14 specific position. That radar position is not necessarily on all fighter planes. And so that's like a very specific thing. 
but there are single seater F-18s. And so it's crazy when you think about um, a tactical fighter pilot in combat, you're talking about somebody doing maneuvers at like sometimes over 500, 600 miles an hour working a radio because they're either talking to air traffic control, talking to their wingman, talking to their tactical controllers that are talking them onto a target. They could be talking to ground infantry troops who are talking them onto a target. Like very likely they're going to be talking to someone on the radio. They're managing their radar systems, right? They're looking for incoming enemy and all that. They're running all the weapon systems. And yes, Rich is right. A lot of modern aircraft have a lot of computer systems that help you out with that. And the F-14 also had computer systems, clearly. It was kind of a mix of animals. Like, for example, um, you'll notice that the wings on the F-14 can go from basically 90 degrees out to swept back at, like, say, 60 degrees or something. That's a uh, computer-controlled function. So the pilot doesn't actually control that. It's just based on the flight envelope and the speed and altitude and a bunch of different things. It affects the aerodynamics of the plane and the computer is controlling when it sweeps the wings back, etc. So you can get a lot of help, but still, I can only imagine what it's like to fly this freaking Ferrari in the sky with weapons by yourself. Uh, Especially since it's not that unusual to be in a position where you might pass out this is why fighter pilots are in really good shape and they wear g-suits uh that if you've never looked into it or heard of them are these suits that have a is it pneumatic or hydraulic I, i'm not sure like a pressurized system to help prevent the g it's a system that will actually like it'll squeeze your legs when the blood is rushing down your body to pump blood back up like it actually it keeps you from passing out in certain extreme conditions so like you know doing all that by yourself it's like there's not really any room for error if you go back to air shows where there have been horrific accidents oftentimes what happens is a pilot doing like a loop or some kind of maneuver passes out for a few seconds and when he loses control of the plane that's when the accident happens because the margins are so tight so yeah flying a fighter jet especially in a combat scenario by yourself is a highly highly demanding job okay so I've read several critical reviews and some some were more positive than others. But the overriding consensus, like I said, my mission briefing is amazing aerial fight mm-hmm. scenes and, and flying scenes. Terrible, predictable plot. Like even the ones who were like, it's fine. It's very sweet. It's very, who are, you know, very pro what the movie is selling. You know, this Americanist, not nationalist necessarily, but like pride in America and our Air Force and our military capabilities. Uh, this is the Navy, not the Air Force. I'm sorry. No, nobody's <laughs> promoting the Air Force in this movie. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. And I saw it. I saw it on the fucking plane. I just think as a civilian, I see I see a plane and I think, well, that's got to be the Air it's Force. It's a forest. It's in the air. What do you want from me? <laughs> right, right. I know. Exactly. Exactly. It's, in other languages, that is kind of the word. It's like army just means the military and air force just means anything that flies. But, you know, yes, you know, that yes, I can't that's stand totally that. how I think of it. No, you cannot. No, you cannot. Because you would you would face endless ribbing from, from fellow vets. But it feels like the plot in this is really predictable. Like you can kind of see all of the beats coming. And I would say the pro for that is that this movie is not about the plot. This movie is about giving you awesome aerial combat footage and 
telling you that Tom Cruise is the handsomest, sexiest man ever and that all that type. Of I mean, thing. I don't want to steal words out of Liam's mouth, but I feel like maybe maybe I should say this for my breakdown, but I feel like part of this movie's job is to give you a hard on. And, you know, that's something the characters say several times. Several times. And that's oh, it is quite boner inducing. I think yes. whether yes. whether you are an America fan, whether you are an aviation or military nerd, uh, whether you like hot dudes playing volleyball or whether you're just into Tom Cruise. like Or you like silhouetted tongues licking each yeah, other. Yeah, there are. Or you like sweat. sweat. The oil is like the, sweat. The, the folks who are super into yes. sweat. Every scene has something for you. Yes. Because everyone is just sweating. You're just sitting there jacking it to Michael Ironside. You know, it's. Oh, oh God. <laughs> we'll get into Michael Ironsides and how much I love him well, later. Dave, you but. talked about you were almost one of those statistics. And you listened to, uh, you know, other pilots that kind of came up right after that. You know, they turned in their 20s, maybe late 80s or 90s. You know, several pilots talk back to that. Like, yeah, I saw Top Gun and that's what I knew I wanted to do. Like, it, it is. It, it grabs. It grabbed them. It grabs you. <laughs> oh, I mean. No, no real. Real quick, this was something that I read prior to seeing the movie. The first time or the first time? time. Okay. So this is something that I kind of came into it with that first viewing that in the real world equivalent of the program that these guys are going through, there isn't really like a trophy who's the best kind of mentality. Right. That seems like it would be like... Kind of against the yeah. whole point. So it makes me kind of curious as to how this became such a great recruiting tool with like everybody coming into wanting to be Tom Cruise when really they want everybody coming in to be Val Kilmer. Everybody wanted to fly in a 14. <laughs> yeah, it. I think everyone wanted <laughs> to be a fighter pilot. It's not necessarily that it's like, oh, everyone's going to want to be a hothead. But look, there, there's something to be said for shit hot pilots and shit hot controllers for that matter since i work with a lot of those oh is there is there a corresponding controller to this kind of pilot i mean yes there is definitely it especially on the on the military side obviously it's probably not a good idea to be a hotshot controller at sfo or something i mean like look that, these but... types of jobs and again i can make some comparisons here Flying a tactical fighter is, I'm sure, a very different job from mine, but they all require certain similar things, which is your brain is bouncing around from different tasks like quickly and efficiently. And you have to be constantly reshuffling that deck of cards to kind of know what's up to bat, what you need to be doing next and to be able to change that plan quickly as soon as something starts to go wrong. Right. Like those are similar right. qualities. I mean, firefighting cops like lots of jobs have these types of qualities but i can just speak for these two and oftentimes that also requires assertiveness and aggressiveness and a certain amount of ego now a lot of big dick energy flying around that control tower yeah i mean i work with a lot of women too so like back in this day fighter pilots were only men so i think the big dick energy thing is big a dick energy is gender neutral it doesn't seem doesn't seem so, but like any gender can have a that's dip, right. So. Fair enough. I get what you're saying, but there is that line where a lot of people have a hard time turning off that ego that you need 
to be assertive, telling people what to do or telling your airplane what to do, and then dealing with other people on a human relations and just a coworker kind of way. And that's something I think we all struggle with in my job is to like not be an asshole and learn when to tone things down. Every once in a while you run into like this perfect controller who is very technically proficient at their job, never panicked, never stressed, and also just really nice and a really sweet coworker. Uh, I can think of specifically a couple of women I work with who are like that. I'm like, I wish I could be more like you, but instead I come off more like an asshole. F-18 pilots and F-14 pilots in this case, but tactical combat aircraft pilots, I'm sure are no exception. There's a lot of egos flying around. I remember in Iraq working radar and I was working the airport where we worked and talking to the departures and getting them to the, where they were going. And we had lots of bombing ranges and active firing areas within our base or in the outskirts. And there was a hot range right off the departure end a few miles. And so, uh, you know, you had altitudes for this. And basically from you, if it's bombing from the air, then it'll be surface, meaning the ground to whatever altitude, because there are helicopters or aircraft, you know, firing things into the ground. And so to be like, oh, yeah, this is hot from 6,000 feet and below. So you can't fly. It's like a big 3D red box that you can't fly through. And I remember an F-18 pilot departing and I told him about it and he flew right through the middle of that shit. just did not care and you know i reported him i went through the process but definitely i've run into my fair share of like hot shit f-18 pilots uh th that being the equivalent of an f-14 for my era when i went through the military so yeah uh i mean i i believe what the trivia says that this school what is it naval fighter weapon yeah, school naval fighter weapons That's the right term yeah. i think naval fighter weapons school is certainly something where the instructors and all the people running it are encouraging cooperation and teamwork and people are helping each other out but no doubt you want to get the top marks and you want to be the person with the most perfect runs and i'm sure there's a lot of that going on too so it's just that it's kind of the nature of it you know because this did make me feel maybe it was just the fact that it's got tom cruise in the middle of the 80s but something about this did feel very much like you could just make this about a high school football team and not really change anything about the movie yeah oh my god true yeah yeah that's what i'm saying is that this is a very trope heavy movie which i want to be clear about something is not necessarily a bad thing like it works in this movie right and, and i'll have my own personal thoughts about whether or not I like it later, but it works in this movie because it really just hews closely to those tropes and does not try to put any twists on it. It, it is embracing it fully in order to allow the audience to kind of like, here's your connection points with your main character. Here's who your antagonists, because there's not necessarily any villains in this movie other than the enemy Migs. But like Iceman isn't a villain. He's just an antagonist right. in this who he's achieve he's trying to achieve his own goals, which aren't in line with our protagonist's goals. And, and he's right, like 90% of the time. He is. He is, which pains me to say about Val Kilmer. But oh, we um, can love Val Kilmer at this point. Especially as compared to Tom Cruise. He's come back around. Uh, yeah, we can love Val Kilmer and compared to Tom Cruise okay. any day. But as much as it frustrates me to watch as a as a lover of big stupid fun, this is absolutely that category. This is the biggest and the stupidest. <laughs> uh, from from the eighties, I would say, yeah, yeah. There's been much 
much bigger, much stupider, much more fun movies. Since oh, we've then. we've seen this, James Cameron films. We've seen Independence yeah. Day. Um, like we've seen we've seen Roland Emmerich movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've talked about tropes and archetypes on the show before, and I I do agree with Katie. Just because something is a trope doesn't necessarily make it bad, right? Oftentimes. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Liam, you have a long background in this in your own education, but don't archetypes and alternative tropes also sometimes serve the purpose of like allowing you to focus on other things, right? Like what would you say? Yeah. So, and, and I have a couple of questions exactly. about this as okay. far as how much of this movie is leaning into tropes and how much of this movie created them. Because if you look back at especially something like a very trope heavy genre, like gangster pictures, if you go back and you watch like little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson. You're like, this is the tropiest trope trope to ever trope since trope went to trope town. But it was kind of the first, you know, like if you go back and you watch Casablanca and you're like, it's just busting out all these cliches, like here's looking at you, kid, and we'll always have Paris and shit like that. But that was where the tropes came from. So this is in a weird place where by this point, there have been like a lot of these plot beats are expected. Mm -hmm. But as far as like the troubled hotshot pilot. I don't know if we necessarily saw that somewhere else before. You just saw the troubled hotshot, somebody other job, insert, insert job. Right. Yeah. I think what this did was it just took that kind of archetype and then just raised the stakes by putting him in a piece of machinery that's going 600 miles an hour and like right. firing missiles, yeah. firing missiles and, and what have you. Maybe like gunslingers, that kind of, it's like a gunslinger type of movie, but like, again, with the stakes way up through the air because he's flying this piece of machinery and it's ostensibly supposed to be fairly realistic. But as far as tropes and archetypes being a good thing, to my mind, it's always how much is it intentional? Sure. You know what I mean? It's a, a lot of it to answer your question, Dan, is yes, it can give us a quick cultural shorthand. I feel like I've used that phrase a lot over the past few episodes, but like a quick cultural shorthand that, you know, it's like, oh, okay, I can immediately relate to this and I know what these dynamics are. So now we can go on and do something else that's interesting. Right. I think the prime example of that is his dead dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like his, his dead dad who died in mysterious circumstances and he's he's all broken up about it inside trying to overcome that through his hotshot pilot. Yeah, he's flying or against whatever. a ghost. Yes, as excuse says. Chasing demons. I almost felt that was a little underdeveloped in this movie. Is that weird? Like, it definitely yeah, was. I agree with that. You could make an entire movie about that, and they just decided not to. No, they just have Tom Skerritt be like, here's yeah, oh, here's here's the thing. Oh, I was there. Which again, totally stealing Hot Shots Thunder. <laughs> it just becomes the carrot to get him to get over Goose's death. Yeah, right. It's the balm to soothe the wound that he's experiencing, which feels odd because those two things like don't necessarily correlate. The fact that, you know, he feels responsible for his friend's death and his complex issues with his dad are like uh, pretty separate. This movie doesn't necessarily. It takes shortcuts in ways that are very unsatisfying, but that's not the point of the movie. And the movie's pretty clear about that. It hand waves very effectively like 
here's your answer for this. We are moving on now. And as long as you are willing to go along with that in the film, you're going to have a pretty decent time, I would say, because it's yeah, plot it's kinda... structure. It, it does a lot of things that this still happens today, but especially you see this a, a lot in 80s movies where the hero is introduced and they put them in a situation where you're immediately supposed to like them. You know what I mean? Where it's like they do something. Right. It's like he had right. the chance to do what he was told, but he broke the rules so that he could safely guide his his buddy back into back to the carrier. He did right. the brave thing. Yeah, he did the brave thing, the brave thing, the right. right thing. But it was the right thing that he had to defy convention to do. It was the morally yeah. correct thing in his mindset. Yeah. And we can all empathize with it's that. the moral but rebellious move so by right. the time we're 10 minutes into the movie we know absolutely everything we need to know about maverick right exactly so yeah. this is that D D chart like he's squarely in the chaotic good box yes that's what we're saying <laughs> this is- Yo, totally. definitely ko good totally He's he's the paladin here, man. Like I know he comes off as like a fighter, but really, no, paladins are lawful good. That's Iceman is the paladin. There you go. <laughs> okay, yeah, Iceman is go. lawful good. That he is. is have, I mean, anybody who's played Dungeons and Dragons with somebody playing a paladin in the party, you know they suck to play D anD D with. <laughs> I it's don't like, know. Stop, stop <laughs> scanning the room for searching for evil so that you can smite something, and let me just pick this guy's pocket and don't be an asshole about it. <laughs> no, see, I once ran a game with a paladin who multiclassed as a warlock. And so they both had a god and a demon that they served. And I was like, she asks me about it. And she's she's playing a tabaxi, which is a cat mm-hmm. creature. And I was like, well, this seems very accurate to a cat that they would both be like, I have my happy person and my sad person. And they both give me fun things. So I was like, I am down with this. Let's do it, girl. I Let's played a it. campaign where my buddy was playing as a paladin. And I was playing as a variant class of paladin that was chaotic. Oh no! Oh, oh no! We we almost didn't. Our friendship almost didn't survive a couple of times. Like it got <laughs> it got pretty heated because <sighs> I was like stealing shit that. and showing up naked and just he was just not having any of it. That sounds about right. Seriously, Lana, call Kenny Loggins because you're in the danger zone. <sighs> so. Considering the tropes and archetypes and kind of standard setup on the plots here, what do you think, since we just covered this, about Iron Eagle compared to Top Gun? In term, Clearly, both films have tropes and both films have pros and cons. And I kind of want to get this out of the way in this section so we can move on to continue talking about Top Gun. But I want to start off with Rich. Um, how do you feel... Aside from the obvious, the budgets right. are different, the critical reception is different, but how else does Iron Eagle compare to Top Gun? Two films released in the same year. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they could really be farther apart. I mean, yeah, on the surface, may look the same, and the VHS box art probably <laughs> looked similar if you were walking down that blockbuster back in the day. But um, yeah, I mean, I mean, Iron Eagle is, and I think I said this in some of the research, it's a class of movie you don't really see anymore where it's kids save the day and upend the adults. That's kind of the heart of Iron Eagle. It's the, the adults don't know what they're doing. They can't do it. The experts in the field can't do it. So you've got to leave it to the kids. It's Goonies. It's war games. 
it, there Red was a Dawn. bunch of those in the eighties that Red Dawn, yeah, you don't see those anymore, or maybe they just go straight to Netflix e. or something e. now. <laughs> ET, yeah. They, as as someone with children who watch movies this age, they are a lot of uh, direct to Disney Plus. Yeah. There are a lot of that kind of thing that goes direct to Disney Plus these my, days. Uh, my daughter's 13, and we just had a conversation on tonight about this, talking about it. And and um, I said, they probably still have them, but they're just Pixar animated movies now. Right. It's Baymax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to say, what do you call it? The synopsis for Iron Eagle could very easily be like, 17-year-old shoots down the defense minister of Bilia. It's like, that's about as kid conquers the yeah. world <laughs> yeah. as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. Kid conquers like injustice, even and like fascism and ideals. It's not even just like it's another country. It's so presented as American values versus the other. It just stretches it so far. Like, you know, it's every little beat just keeps upending the next thing. Like, okay, he's going to steal the planes. Okay, I can, I'll suspend disbelief. I'll get him over with that. Now they're going to fly halfway around the world somehow logistically figure out refueling options okay i'm still with you a little bit maybe you know you're getting you're getting further and further that that credulity box is getting slower lower lower right he's gonna land pick up his father <laughs> take off again <laughs> like it, it becomes just farce itself it becomes hot shots at the end <laughs> that's what it becomes <laughs> right well and also top gun you know top gun gets a a lot of either recognition or criticism for being jingoistic and pro-military and maybe i would feel that way this watch if i hadn't literally just watched iron fucking eagle <laughs> <laughs> like that movie is yeah. weirdly politically infused yeah yeah there's, there's in a very like pro reagan it's a jimmy carter shout out <laughs> yeah this is Ray Gun. Johnny Ray Gun. Yeah. That was Liam's favorite part. This movie is a product of Reagan's America. It's a product of its time. Iron Eagle was a commercial for it. Yeah. You know that's what I mean? Like it. it was it was just such a tonally weird fucking movie. And it- Yeah, because because I would also argue that this is I think you said it well. This is a product of the Reagan era, but this is not an endorsement of like the Reagan style or Reagan administration. No, yeah, you could this... watch this movie and have no idea who Reagan was and watch the same right. movie as right. Ronald Reagan watching this movie. Like Right. And Top Gun could have come out during the Clinton administration, yep. the Bush administration, Obama. It could have come out now, like the sequel coming out, and it doesn't really clash because it's a very general sort of like this is what the military has to do. And it's internal. It's in a bubble. It's not too much. And maybe it's because the plot sucks. Well, the, the plot it's, sucks. it's like a very broad universal. Like it's vague. Yeah. Right. right? It, there's like, there's very little yeah. to, to grab. There's no onto. chance to criticize the actions of the U.S. military in this film because the U.S. military isn't doing anything overtly wrong. They are legally in the Indian Ocean doing operations. And there is some kind of vague contest in area of operation. Where are these MiGs supposed to be here? Are they not? Kind of like the Gulf of Sidra, right? Is the incident? 
That's kind of what it's loosely based on. Yeah, is is this? Yeah, but like yeah. again, no one's really wrong here. It's kind of like, oh, what do you do in this situation, and when can you fire, and when can you not? But it's not like we're invading a country, and there's some moral stance on whether we should be doing that or not. So again, like you're already bought in on the fact that we have a navy and they have fighter planes, and they're doing shit. Like that's just part of the premise. So. There's there's not too much to object against here in terms of what America, quote unquote, is doing. Like the moral questions in this are not about what the what these guys are doing in the grand scheme of things. The moral questions are about is Maverick behaving dangerously? Is he putting his friends and coworkers at risk? Is he, you know, putting himself over everyone else? And those are the moral questions, not like. Should we be fighting these Megs at yeah, all? Like the movie is not in any way interested in any. Right. Action. I mean, if anything, the real moral question is: Should the Navy rent out two aircraft carriers and like a hundred fighter jets and fire two and fire and explode two missiles and only charge Paramount like one point eight million dollars? I was like, the fucking what? Like <laughs> this is taxpayer money? Like what are you talking about? Blowing up missiles and burning all this gas? I mean, gas was apparently a dollar a gallon back then, so like relatively cheap, but still. Yeah, they paid like $8,000 every five minutes or something for they weren't filming like official military actions. So like if these folks were like just doing their regular day jobs and they managed to get the film of them, they didn't that have to pay for it. That was part of the but contract. But them, when they asked them to go up, I I want to say it was 10000 bucks an hour is actually what the flights cost. Yeah. Them. Which um, makes sense. I mean, that's uh, look, flying's expensive great. nowadays. I mean, you take a helicopter up and it's like just the operating costs are several thousand dollars an hour. Like shit is expensive. Yeah. In Top Gun, they really did keep track of, of the cost per hour and everything on that because there was some issues with the accounting. Um, I guess it's a nice way to put it. After filming the final countdown, you know, allegations of maybe some gifts received into flight time that was off the books. Oh. Some folks got in trouble. And so this one, it was very much um, by the book. You had to tighten it up. And at the same time, shout out to um, a couple other podcasts that we can toss to at the end. There, there's, you know, people that were the technical directors on Top Gun talk about how their COs were very hands-off. They wanted kind of deniability if anything happened. They didn't want to be responsible for it. So, they gave them very much free reign to, as long as it was safe, as long as it wasn't illegal, do what you've got to do and for the movie. But, um, you know, keep everything else straight and above board. <laughs> they were very cognizant of what had happened just, you know, a few years before with that. As an accountant, I can sympathize with their feelings on this, where it's like, uh, I only got so much wiggle room, dude. These are the things you need to keep straight. And the other stuff I don't even want to know about because I don't want to take responsibility for that shit. <laughs> if the hammer comes down, it's coming down on you, not me. So, <laughs> speaking of production costs and how they had to do things, there was some contention between Tony Scott, the director, and the studio. But apparently for the uh, opening Tony Scott wanted to shoot aircraft taking off and landing on the aircraft carrier backlit by the sun. And the... Oh, he wanted to do magic time? And the CO, the captain of the carrier, had changed course of the ship. And when Scott asked if the ship could continue on the previous course and speed, he was told that turning the ship would cost $25,000. Because, again, we're talking about a floating city of 5,000 people and et cetera, et cetera. Scott then wrote the captain a quick $25,000 check so the ship could be turned and he could keep shooting for another five minutes. According to Scott, the check bounced. (laughs) Oh my God. That is amazing. 
talk about the acting because that is such a big part of this film. Yeah, so many names. Who do you who do you want to start with? Oh come on, we got to get it out of the way. Let's talk Tom Cruise for the appropriate three hours and fifty five okay. minutes, and then we'll move on to everybody. I else. think you mean Thomas Cruise Maypother the Fourth. <laughs> I no. Did not know that. Thomas Cruise Maypother the Fourth is his full name, what? by the way. Maypother. So if you haven't, oh my God, if you only read one book this year, read the IMDb mini biography on Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> it is the best fucking written thing I've read in a long time. And it's oh, man. gold. Right. Oh. Nice. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just like I read the first sentence and I was like, this took a ride in 1976. If you had told 14 year old Franciscan seminary student, Thomas Cruz may pother the fourth that one day in the not too distant future, he would be Tom Cruise. One of the top 100 movie stars of all time. He would probably have grinned and told you that his ambition was to join the priesthood. Wow. Like that just, I I was like, wait, am I reading the right bio on the right person? I knew none of this about Tom Cruise, but like it goes on and it's all, I don't know who wrote this, but they put time and care and effort into it. It's, it's bonkers. You owe it to yourself. Okay. Somebody being tracked by Scientology right now. (laughs) Yeah, Definitely. Uh, yeah, I guess we got to be careful before we get. I think it was written by L. Ron Hubbard. (laughs) Uh, Rich, what, what did you think about Tom Cruise in this? Serviceable. Like, you know what you're getting. Like you said, it's, it's the big stupid fun version of acting. It's not breaking any, any boundaries or anything. (laughs) I feel, I feel like this set the tone for what Tom Cruise is going to do for the next 30, 40 years. Like it's, this is everything he's done from then on. A few things notwithstanding, you get, you know, We'll throw your magnolia out there or whatever, but uh, this is everything. This is every Mission Impossible. This is everything else. Right. For his action films, at yeah, least. Yeah. Magnolia <laughs> is the reason why I can never fully write off Tom Cruise. Like, <laughs> Tom Cruise could literally walk up to me on the street and just kick me in the balls and I crumple to the floor and just go, I loved you in Magnolia. <laughs> <laughs> I loved you in Wall Street. This is like, uh, I think Katie said in the beginning, this is what really propelled him. I mean, before this, he's got what under his belt, risky business, all the right moves. Um, there's a movie he did with Shelley Long where him and some buddies go to Mexico. He's super young in that movie too. Uh, the movie directly before this was Legend. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. Which was a flop. Yeah. So when I was a kid, we had VHSs of like, you know, movies we recorded or whatever, you know, like you did back in the day. And we had, mm-hmm. we had Ferris yeah. Bueller's Day Off. And then the very next movie on that tape afterward was Legend, which had like Sloan Peterson in it still. <laughs> and Tom Cruise. And yep, it was like, yep. a, like a hard smash cut. <laughs> like, What's her name? It's a, is it Mia Sarah? Mia Sarah, yeah. Mia Sarah, yes. Yeah, yeah uh, I, I had such a crush on It's Sloan on her. Peterson, yeah. yeah, who didn't? I think it's kind of funny to think about how famous Tom Cruise is now for doing his own stunts to the point where like he'll fire his safety people if they tell him he can't do it. Like he'll just keep hiring people until they allow him. He just gets new safety people. Exactly. Like to climb the, you know, some crazy building in the Middle East or to learn how to fly helicopters. Like he like 
stunt helicoptering the way he did in the last Mission Impossible, which is like, dude, flying helicopters is not easy. It's way harder yeah. than flying fish. That is what, no. what the, the Berg, uh, how do you pronounce it? Berg Khalifa? Berg Khalifa. Yeah, the tallest building in the world. He's like, I'm going to climb that. Which is like made of glass mostly. So like, good luck. Yeah, I'm just going to scale the outside of it like a psycho. Right. So it's kind of funny that now Tom Cruise is famous for taking all this time to learn how to fly all these crazy machines. But at the time, he didn't even know how to ride a motorcycle and like did a little bit of learning on it to do some slower shots. But the famous shot where he's riding next to the F-14, he's being towed by a trailer. And like, yeah, apparently you can see one of the straps and stuff. So it's kind of funny to see his evolution as an action film star and as a very stunty kind of film star to see what he was capable of doing back then, which is puke in the back of an F-14 and just kind of be in a mock cockpit, etc. Which is nothing bad. That's kind of standard actor fare. Like, you're not supposed to be able to fly an F-14 to shoot a movie about it, right? But it's like the Tom Cruise we have now, it's kind of like part of his contract is that he demands the time and money to be able to be trained on everything he possibly needs to fly and run around on. He's like, Oh no, I'm going to jump in between these two train cars for real, et cetera. So I, I think it's, it's fine. Yeah, the, Just let me do it. The contrast is I'm pretty hilarious between the younger Tom Cruise and the older Tom Cruise. Oh yeah, for sure. We had been talking over the past few episodes about movie stars and do they still exist today? Like they used to in the old days. We were kind of remiss because we never brought up Tom Cruise, but the New York Times called him not so very long ago, the last movie star Mm, because he's never done television and nothing he's done has ever gone straight to streaming. He's only had theatrical releases, Okay, which if he's like the only one, the standard though, does that, if that's the standard, then so is Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet. He's only done anything that's gone to streaming. I, I could be wrong, but like there are lots of and not to mention actresses, Anya Taylor Joy. I don't know that she's ever done anything. Well, no, she did Queen's Gambit. That's right. That's right. I mean, but, I, I think like, this standard is kind of bullshit. I don't know who came up with that, but like, who cares? It is kind of bullshit. But like at the same time, it's an interesting point. He's apparently and again, sorry, I went on a I went down a rabbit hole of Tom Cruise <laughs> trivia. <laughs> Uh, but apparently he's like the only person who's worked with Scorsese, Kubrick, Spielberg. And like, there's a, a list of directors that he's worked with. Right. That like nobody has. And now nobody will because Kubrick's dead worked with this list of of directors. I could see that. I mean, also, you have to consider that when it comes to the has not worked in TV thing. TV in the 80s and 90s was a completely different thing than it is now. Like, I don't think for Anya yeah. Taylor-Joy being on the Queen's Gambit on Netflix, I don't think that's ever going to be anything negative no. for her in her career yeah. ever, right? Being in, let's say, the Stephen King miniseries that were, like, hugely prevalent in the 90s and early 2000s. Or, or shit, even recently. Yeah, with you Under now the have the, that Yellowstone prequel that has Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren in it. So, you know, it's... The the lines right, are blurring. Right. The quality and budgets of TV shows have changed completely since the nineties. Right, exactly. It's very it's a very different environment now than it was when this movie yeah, was made. To that sure. argument, Liam, like how many other movie stars do you know that their name is the selling point for the film? Like, is that very few? It's a five four or five, maybe. I mean, it's Yeah, I mean, even the even big huge movie stars like Brad Pitt. Right. Tom Tom Hanks. Hanks. It's, Tom Hanks. it's not necessarily like the name that you go 
to see like, oh, I'm going to go catch the new Tom Hanks movie. Like right. nobody went to see Elvis to see Tom Hanks in a fat suit. Right. <laughs> I really have to say that y'all are very much underestimating a huge movie going audience that is older women because there are a shit ton of grandmas out there. Want to see Tom Hanks in a fat suit? Who want to see Tom Hanks and literally <laughs> no, anything. No, that's fine. Trust me, I went to go see... Or, or like or like Bruce Willis. Like There are people who just go to these movies to see them, and they are generally like older ladies. Like I know my mom and my grandma, Like they had a movie day where it was like, oh, every week I go to the movies, and I see the one that has the young... The cutest young man in it. <laughs> okay, that is the thing. My grandma and I used to go see all the Tom Hanks movies. That's why my grandmother took me to see Philadelphia in 1992. <laughs> That's <laughs> when amazing. I was like 10 years old. But also, yeah. I can tell yeah. you that nobody's grandma went to see Cloud Atlas because it had Tom Hanks in it. That's just not a thing that happened. Right. But you talk about I mean, that 40s, 50s definition of movie star, where you've got, you know, the star, doesn't matter what the title of the movie is or what it's about. Right. It's the star. And very few actors command that now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think when was the last time Tom Cruise opened a movie that didn't have a hundred million dollar box office? Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting when he starts if, well, it's 2017. That mummy. Oh, the mummy did that (laughs) universal monsters reboot. They tried to get off the ground. That was the one, the mummy American made. Yeah. And then he did. Except the mummy reboot killed it in China. So like it might've flopped in the U S box office, but it still made like five times its budget. Thanks. Yeah. It it was extremely financially successful. Just not in the U S. Oh, interesting. Um, and uh, Edge of Tomorrow, that was like a notorious flop. Interesting, because Edge of Tomorrow is actually a pretty cool and different movie. Did you guys all see that? I mean, I, I have heard about it on the Flophouse, for sure. They talk about Edge it's of Tomorrow. It's the best video game movie that's not based on a video game. <laughs> yes, that's what I hear. Yeah, outside of uh, Tom Cruise's Maverick, who are a couple of like your favorite characters in this, or actors? That's Michael Ironside's character. Which I'm blanking oh. on his call scene. Fucking amazing. Uh, Jester. Jester. Uh, Jester. Jester's dead. Jester's dead. Yeah. <laughs> I love Michael Ironsides just in general. And he's really fun, even though he gets just like a, a very yeah, small he, he part of the movie. Yeah, he chews up he's in. Like he's, he's right there. He's you so know, good. He's got that little exchange with Tom Scarrett. You know, he got you, didn't he? You know, <laughs> kind of thing. That's, that's, that's so classic. Yes. And his voice just is. Just commands gravitas. Like if you play video games, he's the voice of of Sam from the Splinter Cell series. Not super different from uh, Starship Troopers. Michael Ironsides, right. same role, same 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 kind yeah. of set. twice yeah. the arms, but that's definitely what I thought when I saw him turn around. I was like, "Hey!" <laughs> All right, let's. Th- there's a lot of people to talk about here. I think we talked Tom Cruise as Maverick. Uh, Goose is Anthony Edwards, Iceman Val Kilmer, Hollywood is Whip Hubley, Wolfman, Barry Tubb. Which is an MST3K name <laughs> if I've ever heard Whip Hubley. Whip yeah. Hubley. Sundown, Sundown, the only the only black pilot, I think, Clarence Gilliard Jr. Is that fucked up? Uh, no, it's 86. I'm sure it's pretty accurate, actually. Yeah, that's, yeah. You're, you're lucky you had him one in 86. No, I don't mean that he's the only black pilot. I mean that they named him Sundown. Oh. <gasps> it is a little bit. Yes. Yes, it okay, is. Okay, thank is you. Uh, he would have known. Why is that bad? You don't know what Sundown Towns oh, are? Oh, no. 
the sundown towns were towns where black people had to be out of them by sundown or they were going to get attacked or arrested. I highly doubt they're making that connection. No, they're not making that oh, reference. Okay. But that actor definitely would have known that reference. It's one of those things where it's probably like a bunch of white guys and then they ended up casting a black guy in that role. And then, and then they were and the black guys like, well, I'm going to take the role. But this is a little weird. Well, okay. While we're talking call signs, uh, who was Iceman's partner? Slider. 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 Rosovich. I was. I was loved seeing him because the only thing I've seen him in other than this was Roxanne oh, with right. Steve Martin, where he plays oh, the hot fireman who Daryl Hannah really wants to yeah. be with. Weird. The funny thing is, in real life, and I think we've mentioned this before on the show like pilots tank drivers whoever it is like you don't get to name your nickname you do some dumb shit like piss yourself in an alley drunk as shit on the weekend and now your nickname's pisser you know what i mean like you don't and that's like what gets stamped on the side of your airplane like the piss boy yeah like i think it's the guy who drew they drew straws to see who would get to do the flyby of the tower and i have a bit of trivia on that as well his nickname's bozo you know (laughs) Like, he didn't pick that name. That's the thing. All these cool Iceman and Maverick. Like, no one has that nickname because no one else is giving you that nickname because you're that cool. So it's like. This means that Bob's Burgers is more accurate about Navy nicknames than Top Gun because Teddy, his nickname is Double Dip because he falls over the side twice. Exactly. Yeah. Like Bedwetter is a more accurate call sign than like Maverick for sure. If that's like something that you're infamous for. Uh, now on, your name is Mothball. Kroger, your Delta Tau kind of name is Pinto. Why Pinto? Why not? I think my favorites are like the two surprise moments in this, which are that Tim Robbins <laughs> is in this movie. Is he though? <laughs> yeah, I mean, did they show him with his has, mask off at any no, point? No, not once. Okay. He has really high billing in it. He's like number two or three. I feel like I never so saw his face, just his you eyes. You never did. No, he's not two or three, I was but waiting he's like for it. definitely in that second grouping. So you get right. like. No, no, I mean, oh, on IMDb, he? like now on IMDb, it's like Tom Cruise, yeah, Tim Robbins, that's Tim Kelly Robbins McGillis. more famous now than he was. Then. <laughs> when they do things that are grouped up in the opening credits, they do like, you know, it's Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Then it's like Val Kilmer, Kelly McGillis. And then they do like a group of three and a group of three. I think he's in that first, maybe the top of the second group of three. And you never fucking see his face. No. And I was waiting because I liked Tim Robbins quite a bit as an actor. And I was like. Okay, he's in it. He's he's okay. He's got to be here soon. Uh, also, six foot five would never have fit into an F fourteen. <laughs> very tall, for the record. Tall. Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize. Damn it! Why doesn't the military want me to fit in their cool shit? Can't be in a sub. Can't be in an F fourteen. I don't know what the official is and how it changes with models, but generally speaking, you have to be a like average sized human to fit in fighter jets it's like you have to be between probably five seven and six two it's like trying out for the rockets sorry liam you're just too tall (laughs) i'm too short i'd have to put little pegs on my feet if i needed to drive it that's how i think by the way since liam's so familiar with hot shots (laughs) if they miss this comedic beat which i cannot remember it's really a missed opportunity 
famously in the trivia, Kelly McGillis is five foot ten and Tom Cruise is five foot seven. So because producers do not like to show, especially with love interest, a man shorter than a woman, at a minimum, they have to be the same height, if not lifting the man a little bit higher, because that's just the standard, I guess. Toxic masculinity. Yeah. Tom Cruise was either wearing lifts when he was next to her or like in the bar scene. Apparently, they dug a trench for her to stand in so that she would be lower. That is not uncommon in old Hollywood. They did that with Alan Ladd a lot. He'd play mm-hmm. against Veronica Lake and he'd either have to stand on a box or they'd dig a trench for her to walk in. That is that is old okay, school. Okay, fair. Are you telling me... There is not a fucking scene in Hot Shots where you see two dudes with like a pickaxe, like digging a trench for an actress to stand in. That would have been such a good. There is not. There should have been. But uh, they They definitely missed out on that. one. They did make jokes about how tall she is, but usually it was long leg sex jokes. But interesting. How dare you disrespect a tall queen? Personally, I, I am a huge fan of folks such as Elizabeth Debicki, who is like. Your height, I'm not. What, who's who's disparaging them? Not I. Surely, Hollywood producers. Oh, okay. In the 1980s. I thought you were talking to us, and I was like, "How? <laughs> I was like, how dare me? Moi? No. Uh, how, how dare, dare they? they? Indeed. How, how dare they? Not us. No, we recognize and stand a tall queen. So filming it, the original cut of the movie had like no end cockpit voiceover. It was just the flying scene to see the actors and that was it. And the technical director was like, this is the most boring thing ever because you have no idea what's going on. You just see planes flying in a pilot. Mm-hmm. So the directors, the technical directors talked Tony Scott into like, hey, let's have some shots with them with their masks on. And then you can go back and then add the voice track if you need to, because you're going to want right. that anyway. And the first cut. As, as they predicted, they didn't like it. It was it was all a disaster because it was too quiet. Right. So, everybody went back, added their lines. Tim Robbins apparently was kind of like the holdout. And they said, well, fine, we'll just get someone to come impersonate your voice. And he finally apparently relented and came in because he saw kind of, I guess, the, how the movie was going and didn't want to be associated with that jingoism kind of thing. That's how we looked at it. Oh, interesting. Mm, yeah. he, he was, I, I think this would have been the Susan Sarandon yeah, his, boy toy his, phase his, uh, in his life. So Weren't they married? <laughs> Yes, but she's oh, way okay. older than him, so I just like to call him her boy mm-hmm. toy. It's, fair fair cute. enough. Speaking of that, is Kelly McGillis like a decent bit older than Tom Cruise? Because I couldn't tell if she looked decently older than him or if he's just got like the goddamn baby face from hell. Yeah. Baby face. He's got Paul Rudd syndrome. Assuming they shot most of this in 85, I usually just subtract a year from the year it was released, which generally is going to work. Right. That's a good Good that practice. would make Kelly McGillis 28 and Tom Cruise and Anthony Edwards as Goose both 23, while Val Kilmer is 26. So, yeah, I was kind of keeping track of that. Yeah, that that about tracks with how old yeah, they that, look. Yeah, that looks about right. It just struck me as interesting that, like, typically in an 80s movie, they wouldn't cast a woman who is older than him as the love interest. Right. You know what's also interesting is these ages are all relatively realistic for our war movie genre. Like normally actors are 10, 15 plus years older than anyone who would have been in that position. Now Maverick in the sequel is way too old to still be an active fighter pilot, but 23 is right on the money. Maybe even a touch young because you have to actually have finished college and gone through flight training and gone into the fleet. So I'll bet you Val Kilmer's age of 26 is probably the most accurate for like a fighter pilot who would be going to Top Gun as a a pilot with right. a couple of years under their belt. Yeah. 
But in terms of Kelly McGillis as Charlie being the instructor, I think 28. Yeah, no, makes again, sense. Maybe a little young, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, she, she's done, a, she's obviously, as an astrophysicist, she's probably done a, a bunch of, like, research, published papers in order to reach this level in her career to be considered trustworthy by Washington and I all mean, that I, stuff. I mean, it's also, like, what the fuck is an astrophysicist doing at, like, examining fighter pilot tactics? That does not sound at all like a giant. <laughs> none of us are physicists. But I'm like, shouldn't we she be at NASA that. doing some other shit? I assumed that it was all about like the physics of flight. That was my that was my out for the film. I was like, okay, sure, why not? I guess I'll give him that one. It just seemed a little. She seemed a little overqualified for that job. I'll just say that. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah. Apparently, Kelly McGillis' character is based on Christine Fox, who was a real civilian flight instructor that the producers met at Miramar. Miramar is a at the time naval base, now a Marine Corps base uh, in San Diego. And she ended up rising through the ranks in the Pentagon and retired as the acting deputy secretary of defense, the highest post ever held by a woman in the Department of the Defense. And her nickname was Legs. So that was her call sign. There you go. It makes me just feel like crying. Before we get too too much further, I want to bring up Meg Ryan. Oh, yes. Because right. she has a she has a tiny. Oh, this is like this peak thing. Meg Ryan. No, this is not peak Meg Ryan. This, this is this is start. This is the okay, start. Okay, in of my Meg eyes, Ryan. this is This peak is Meg, Meg Ryan, Ryan going up the hill. Because my mom is a huge Meg Ryan fan, so th- we went and saw all the Meg Ryan movies in the theaters. I watched Sleepless in Seattle at an entirely too young of an age and have loved her forever and Every time I see her in this, I was like, oh, my God, Meg Ryan. Oh, she's so, so fun cute. and perfect yeah, in she's this. Great. She's very, she's, uh, to bring it back to Bob's Burger, she's very Linda. She's just share, oversharing that her husband tells her mm-hmm. everything and, and just being so over the top. I was like, I love it. Very this. uncouth. Mm-hmm. Deliciously yeah. so. Like, very warm and comfortingly, like, very real. Hey, Goose, you big stud. That's me, honey. Show me the way home, buddy. So good. I loved her. I had a huge crush on her when I was a kid. Same. If you want to track down my favorite romantic comedy, which is not on streaming, you have to like find the disc and I own it. It's from the early 90s called French Kiss. Love it. With Meg Ryan and Kevin Klein. Klein. Kevin Klein, Meg Ryan. Yeah, no, that's that is fabulous. I watched that shit. It's so fucking much. phenomenal. That is such a goddamn good movie. Rich, have you ever seen that? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. That's Kevin Klein plays a French jewel thief. <laughs> oh, and he is such a oh. dirtbag, and he's so good at he it. Is. It's right. such a good movie. Oh, right. amazing. <laughs> I love <laughs> French she's, Kiss. She's neurotic as hell in that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's Katie, so good. what would you say, as the resident expert, what would you define as peak Meg Ryan before, like, The Descent? I got a call. I would say yeah, peak. peak. Like, like top, top pinnacle of her game, Meg Ryan. You've got That's mail. That's what I'm saying. Fucking you've got mail. It you've was all mail. downhill from you've got mail. Because I think after that, she made that weird movie where she's like a stalker or something. No, Sleepless in like Seattle a- was before you've got mail. Sleepless in... No. 
no it's oh god i can't remember the title of the movie but she's and she's fine in it but it's just a really so i'm gonna hand someone a twenty-five thousand dollar check we gotta turn this boat around bring it back bring it back back. (laughs) i have a personal affinity for tom scarrett of this era in general just from the original alien because he's so great as dallas the captain uh in 19 in really scott's 1979 alien and i really like him this he's that like He's like the dad you don't want to disappoint, you know? He's got that firm hand, but he's respectful and kind of loving, and he's got that awesome mustache. I don't know. There's just something about Tom Scared I really like. It's a wiry mustache, but solid. Oh, it's it looks like a wire brush for sure, but it's great. Yes. Like, yes. I want to scrub my cast iron pans with it. <laughs> perfect. And then James Tolkien, who... You don't really know by name in this because he's just the bald commander who is yelling at Tom Cruise. Strickland. <laughs> Strickland. He's Strickland. Yeah, but he is Strickland <laughs> in Back to the Future. He is so freaking great. His call sign Stinger. I don't know why that guy isn't in more shit because he is so good at that role and he's so intimidating, but in like an endearing way. I, I just love him. I freaking love James Tolkien. He's amazing. I didn't know his real name. I just know him as Mr. Strickland. All right, I guess I'll. Are we all through mentioning people? We, we gotta give some love to Val Kilmer. Yeah, uh, we, we gotta we gotta give some love to Mad Mardigan in one of his other great '80s roles. Is this peak Val Kilmer? <laughs> it, 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 well, no, it's not peak Val Kilmer. Is this peak Val Kilmer? This is not peak Val Kilmer, but no. it's it, it's getting close. It's hot Val Kilmer. <laughs> oh, sure. hot Val Kilmer. Oh, Jesus! He... The way he chaws on that gum. I was like, how he, how he bites at him like a shark. Like, it's oh, just, yeah, the bite. The bite is great. So good. <laughs> oh, just the mouth sounds in that, which are just so upsetting. He's oh, always he been my bite. favorite character in this. Ugh. Nice. Both times I've watched it. I'm like, <laughs> why isn't this movie about Iceman? He's the shit. It should be right. <laughs> He's and I do like that at the end, like. He gets that recognition that he is the top gun. He is the one who deserves to graduate with the best. Although question for the Air Force. Whoa. Or Whoa. Question for the airplane. <laughs> the forces people. that are up in the air, obviously. The forces of the air. I, the zone will be one of danger. Question for the airplane people. Is it in any way Iceman's fault that that That's what happened? I wanted to talk about with, with Goose's death. Who is to blame? Is Iceman to blame for hanging on too long? Okay, so first of all, how did it happen? Yes, please. Because they're us. very vague in a lot of the key plot points of this when it gets a little too crunchy as far as where the lines are that these people are or are not supposed to be flying over, why they have to send these fighters out, what the MiGs are doing, things like that. And one of the things that I thought was kind of brushed over was what the fuck happened to Goose? Like, I know that they engine failure, something about air, <laughs> something about air, something about it. It's like <laughs> they got air in the engine. I'm like, that sounds bad. They're in the slipstream or jet stream. They're jet in stream. that scene. They're flying behind ice. It's funny. He's Iceman, yep. but he's credited at the end as just ice. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. It's like an American gladiator. <laughs> yes. And then Iceman won't like can't get the shot. But he won't get out of the way. And then he gets out of the way. Right. And then uh, their plane gets all fucky and shits the bed. 
<laughs> and uh, starts spinning around and spinning around in the way that they don't usually where it's like yeah tail it's, it's a bad kind of bad kind of spinning around and then they are able to hit the eject button and they eject but then in the ejection goose hits the the what do you call it the hood canopy 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 it's the glass thingy and then dies okay so right this is a- so my question is what happened to the plane and who was at fault was it Iceman? I feel like Iceman might have killed Goose, and they never say it. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Okay, so essentially the way the film explains this, and pilots will have to chime in here on whether this is remotely plausible, and I don't know the tactical rules about their rules of engagement and whether Iceman is in a position he shouldn't be in here. But the way the plot of the movie sets this up is Iceman is too close. I don't know what is taking him, quote-unquote, 20 more seconds and then 10 more seconds, which seem to be doubled in the film. Like, it seems like he's there for like 40 seconds when he says 20 and another 20 seconds when he says 10. And it's like, what exactly are you trying to do here? And nobody knows. So Maverick and Goose seem to be in the proper distance and position to be able to use either their missiles or probably their guns in this case, because they're too close on the MiG. But Iceman's in the way. When he finally bugs out and gets out of the way because he realizes he can't align properly or back off enough, maybe because Maverick's behind him again, it's left kind of vague in the story. What seems to happen is that they get caught in the jet wash, meaning the actual they're so close that the propulsion coming out the back end of the jet engine actually affects the airflow because, right, there's intakes taking in air into the jet turbine that's then getting, you know, combusted and pressurized, et cetera, and pushed out the back. And it takes out their left engine, I think. And the way engines are shown to be going out or flaming out is the appropriate term in the movie. And it makes sense because it's visually, you can see it, is they have their afterburners on, which is when you're injecting fuel into the back, like exhaust, and it's burning out the back and giving you, it burns a shit ton of fuel, but gives you more propulsion. And the what the actual F-14s are doing in the shots is they're just turning the afterburner off. So you go from seeing flame to not seeing flame. And that is narratively supposed to suggest visually that that engine has gone out. That's how they're achieving that effect. Mm-hmm. So in the scene, you see one of their engines go out. And if you think about it, just like on anything else that has two engines, two propellers, two whatevers, if you turn one of them off and the other one is still on, the vehicle is going to start turning in the direction of the engine that's turned off, which in this case is called yaw. If you turn a plane on the vertical axis, that's called yaw. And in this case, they would be spinning to the left. So what happens, their engine turns off. They're apparently not able to adjust the other engine in the position that they're in. And their plane gets into a flat spin. So it is just spinning horizontally counterclockwise and they can't recover from it. And so you see this effect done and you see them pressed up against the canopy and Maverick saying, oh, I can't reach the ejection handles because they, they're showing the ejection handles to be on the top of the ejection seat. Turns out in real life, this particular type of ejection seat actually had handles below as well. So that if you're in a position where you're being pushed down, you can still reach the ejection handles. So that kind of covers the first part of the incident. And flat spins are a real thing. Art Scholl, who the film is dedicated to, we mentioned him in Iron Eagle because he flew the Cessna Aerobat that is in the motorcycle race in that movie. 
Um, he died during the filming of this. He was flying a chase plane, like a camera plane, just getting shots of the fighters. I don't know. I don't think, I don't know what he was flying and I don't think his incident is directly related to this, but he got into some kind of spin that was unrecoverable and they crashed in the ocean and died. So definitely something that can happen to planes. And as best as I can piece it together, that's what I see happening in the plot. Again, if there are pilots out there that can correct us and write into the show and tell us what they think happened, I'm sure there's lots of YouTube videos where fighter pilots are giving their opinions. And then you have the secondary incident, which is the ejection. Rich, what's your thoughts on that? First, I want to give a just kind of a shout out to the F-14 TomCast. It's another podcast out there. They did a series covering the F-14 for a full year. It was a former F-14 pilot in Rio did it. Nice. Um, so shout out to those guys. Of course, they did an episode of Top Gun talking to the um, technical advisor on the film and as well. This is really interesting, really fascinating stuff. Can't recommend it enough, really. Oh, but that's fascinating. And the original script had called for Goose to die through like some kind of mid-air collision. And the technical advisor is like, well, how do you have a mid-air collision with two jets flying, you know, four or five, 600 miles an hour, and somehow Maverick survives. You know, everyone's dead but him somehow of this collision, not to mention he would never be flying again. <laughs> so, one of the technical advisors on the film had recalled an incident that was very similar to what kind of you see in the, in the movie, where uh, 14 was in a spin, flat spin like that, and they um, pulled the ejection handle, tried to get out, and they reported later that the canopy kind of was like kind of floating over them for a little while. Um, and they actually did I think the Rio contacted the canopy. He was injured. I've heard two versions, one where he was killed, and I've heard one where he was just injured. And this, depending on who you're listening to, there seems to be a little bit of discrepancy there. Maybe someone, I'm sure someone will know <laughs> exactly what happened. But either way, that incident was sort of in the advisor's mind. It's like, okay, well, how about this? This actually happened. Very possible that, that, you know, we could have that happen. It would explain why one person would be injured and possibly killed, um, where another one would still survive. Due to the circumstances, it wouldn't necessarily ground Maverick's career. You know, they kind of plausible there kind of, kind of thing if it was found not to be his fault for everything. So, that's kind of where that got written in as a stopgap for that. Yeah, the direct physical problem, I think, seems from what I was reading, seems to be that it's a two-stage process. One where the canopy blows out and then right. should just fall away naturally behind you because the jet is moving forward. And then you have this fucking rocket, basically, explosion underneath the seat that punches you out. Because generally speaking, ejection seats are designed so that you should be able to eject right before you hit the ground. Even if you're at really low altitude, the ejection seat is going to shoot you high enough to be able to deploy a parachute and safely land, even if you're right above the ground. And so it's a really strong force. And pilots often are physically injured during ejections to the point where I think you're maxed out at, is it three or four ejections? There's a point where the flight surgeon will down you and not let you fly anymore because it compresses your, yeah, it compresses the, um, your vertebrae because that's how powerful the rocket is. So ejection is a serious like thing. You only do it because you're going to die. Jesus. And most now, like you said, they're, they're, I think they're called ground rated to where you can be just sitting still on the ground and you can survive the ejection if it goes off. And, and right. also a lot of planes have a, uh, you know, you can eject the canopy separately from the actual ejection seat firing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if there's time, if you have time for it, depending on the scenario. And I think 
Liam, your next part of your question. Well, uh, no, yeah. So basically, it, it, do we think that in the world of the movie, like the canopy is floating above them because they're spinning around in a circle and not going forward, so it doesn't have that like backwards trajectory that it's supposed yeah. to have. I think that's sort of what's implied based on the previous incident and the um, the oh, okay. testimony of the pilots that actually did have similar incident happen. And yeah, I, I had assumed that it had something to do with Iceman moving out of the way. I don't know if his jet engine interfered with their jet engine in that process, but it's never super yeah. clearly stated that it's like, oh, that's what happened. That's the implication for yeah. sure. But is it Val Kilmer's fault? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that none of us here is more qualified than the fictitious <laughs> naval aviation military board that is convened to determine whether uh, Maverick is at fault for Goose's death. Now, granted, they never ask if it's Iceman's fault, though. That's what is always like. They just say he's yeah, right, right? But not the only one involved in this incident. Like, why is he the one that has to be cleared? Well, the, I mean, this is another kind of conceit for the movie. You know, in reality, he would never be tucked in that close to cover his, his lead. He'd be at top cover farther away or farther back covering his wing. He's super tight in there when he there would be no need to be <laughs> in real life. That doesn't afford you an advantage being in that close. Yeah, I think okay. the analogy here, I think, is more like for anyone who's ever watched Formula One and this, I, I stopped watching it in the 90s, but back when Michael Schumacher was driving for Ferrari and Ferrari was kicking ass left and right, they won like nine championships or something crazy. What happened often, I can't remember who his co-pilot was because the, the racing teams have two cars on the same team, right? And so there's a championship and sometimes your team one gets knocked out, you still have another car in the race. What happened a lot with Ferrari during those years is that Schumacher, who was a great driver, was so adamant on winning that sometimes the Ferraris would end up head to head. And there was more than one race where they knocked both cars out of the race, trying to be first or third or whatever spot they were in because they didn't want the other driver who was on their team to get ahead of them. That's kind of the analogy here. I feel like it's like they're both going in for the kill. They're both in the spot, but they're kind of competing. And then an incident ends up happening. So, yeah, the film is left a little bit vague. But I think the main plot point, of course, is that there's a technical malfunction and Goose tragically dies in the scene. But I remain unconvinced. Where did we last leave off on the plot? Did we get anywhere? I don't think we really got there. Yeah, just we didn't. Okay, so we never got into. The plot. So no. speaking of the plot, here's the end. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, this isn't go. necessarily a hugely plot-driven movie like we talked about. There are some pretty standard, somewhat tropey beats: the introduction, the basic setup, the person in front of him in line cracks up, so he gets to go to Top Gun. And it's fairly standard romance stuff for most of it. The romance kind of takes over the middle section of this movie, yeah? I mean... Which romance? The romance between Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis. Okay, there's that. I think there's like the romance between him and Iceman oh. too. There's the volleyball scene. There's a lot of romance to go around here. Uh I'm fanning myself right now. It's kind of <laughs> hilarious. And I'm not even in the volleyball. Guys. I love that he's in jeans and sweats. <laughs> that, okay, that's what I thought. I was like, 
who the fuck plays volleyball in jeans? I mean, one guy's in sweatpants. I'm like, who the fuck plays volleyball in sweatpants? Even worse. <laughs> Rich, really? You're raising your hand? You play volleyball? Yeah. Like, I play volleyball in jeans if yeah. I showed up and that's all I had and people are like, let's go in. No, no, no. In, in, in Pensacola, there's a lot of beach bars, one called Flounders. They had volleyball nets out there on the on the beach and you'd go out, the, you'd be at the bar, the club be midnight and you'd get a volleyball from behind the bar oh, and shirts and okay. skins <laughs> Okay, okay, that's different. I can second this. This is yeah. definitely true. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense that you're drunk. Well, it, and it also, <laughs> it looked totally like different. they were all, like they had gone someplace specifically to play volleyball is what it had looked like. But I'm like, you you wore jeans there? Yes. Well, again, I don't, I don't right? think they went there to play volleyball. They went to a beach bar to drink. And then someone was like, oh, but I could fuck you up at volleyball. And then they were like, bullshit. See, right? These, are the, these are the key plot points that we're missing. Why is Tom Cruise wearing <laughs> those tight ass jeans? Yeah, I want the volleyball. scene where they go into the bathroom and get baby oiled up. And he's like, slap me, slap me harder. And then they go outside, you know, like, yeah. like you need yeah. that whole scene. Yeah. What's funny about that, I didn't realize this until I went through the trivia, is that Tony Scott didn't even want to shoot this fucking scene. Paramount insisted upon the volleyball scene. No. Are you kidding? And so Tony Scott was like, okay, you want a volleyball scene? I'm going to give you a volleyball scene. So he burned an entire day shooting this volleyball game, which included stunt casting. Like it included people who were not the actors in some of the longer shots and then close ups of the actors, I guess, either because they sucked at playing volleyball or because he didn't want the actors getting hurt. And at the end, the studio was so pissed off that the head of production said, I'm going to fire him talking about Tony Scott because he burned so much time on filming it. And it ended up being <laughs> it was so homoerotic that he nearly got fired for the entire scene. And he lathered them up in baby oil to do the like <laughs> glistening body sweat like look it's the whole thing but, oh my god the oh my burning god. the burning that happens when you're in baby oh, oil and sunlight it's so great and then Ooh. the uh the high and low fives Ooh. behind the back i mean this is a classic scene this is like the classic scene i don't know i agree it is it is very much a classic like uh it is so American. I mean, and what other films Honestly. can be on the shelf of like military rah-rah America enthusiasts and also a particular portion of the LGBT community who I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, considers this like a gay film because of the undertones and the volleyball scene. And like, I think I, I've definitely heard of this. So I, I know it's a thing for some people. In, in some ways. And so it's it's one of those that can be interpreted that way, but it is not over. Right. It might have not been the intent, but it's like people have the posters on their wall. No, no. Like if there hadn't been that love story between Kelly McGinnis and Tom Cruise, then I think we'd be hitting much harder into right. the LGBTQ territory. But while we're there, the other iconic scene that isn't in a plane is the backlit and blue light sex scene. Oh, right. I thought of you guys with the blue uh, lighting. Kitty, I want to hear a take. <laughs> it's so classic 80s. Every 80s movie had one of these. And whether or not you got to see backlit blue light nipples or not determined whether you were watching an R-rated movie or a PG-rated movie. That was the difference. Wait, wait hang on, and, hang on. Let me, let me read from my notes. Katie. How's the love scene? I have literally that exact same blind dig. Okay. <laughs> that was your forte. <laughs> sex scene bad, sex scene good. Is this this is- Katie, your reputation precedes you. 
I I texted my husband and I was like, everybody wants to know my thoughts on the sex scene. I am a hundred percent on brand right now. <laughs> okay, so are they playing "Take My Breath Away"? Yes, yeah, the scene? Uh, yes. I, okay. I'm sorry. I think you meant okay. to say the Oscar-winning <laughs> "Take My Breath Away" song <laughs> <laughs> for like the God. fifth time. I forgot that they play that song every time Kelly McGillis shows up, and they look at each other. Just this song starts playing it's in the yep. elevator it's <laughs> i i like i i didn't really know i i knew that song as like romantic movie song before like really knowing top gun and and getting to know it watching it this time i was like Okay, I like. I used to like this song, but now I feel irritated. I feel, about like, I feel like we are walking onto the thin ice of criticizing this soundtrack. And I will, add, no I, I will like cut the shit out of all <laughs> of this. I'm just warning you. I'm just warning. No, you. I'm just no, saying, no. not the soundtrack, but I it mean, it's like this it. is basically her Jaws music. This is like every time the shark shows up, it plays "Take My Breath Away." Every time right, Kelly I mean, McGillis shows up, it's like exactly. So the sex scene in this, it is very blue. Uh, it's just so boring. Really, I was. I was watching it and I was like, I, I was watching on Paramount Plus, which is the worst fucking streaming oh, service. I watched it the same way because I, they had it in 4K, apparently. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, because Paramount made I this, watched this so in Grano Vision, rights. but it still was appropriate. And and I was like, okay, can I fast forward? No, because Paramount, like, really makes it annoying to fast forward. So I'll just put up with this. And it's shot okay, but. Their kisses are just so there, weird. There's so much tongue. There's so, and, and, and it's, and like, it's basically, now I'm going to put my tongue in your mouth and then you put your tongue in my mouth, but not at the same time. Yes. We're just going to take turns. And then there's like weird humping. Like the humping is like off, off beat in a way that doesn't feel erotic. It feels like two people who don't know how to have sex or who've never had sex before in, in, doing it. And I'm like, Man, this is the not tongues look like somebody was trying to like no. sneak a taste of the chocolate fountain at the Golden Corral. <laughs> like you just stick the tongue in and then pull right? it out and then hope just, nobody notices. That's a oh, very specific just, reference. Dad, to you <laughs> you think is. about some weird shit when you watch love scenes and movies. Yeah. Okay, but but children, I have seen my children do strange things that I was like, did you? Okay, well that's traumatizing for me. There's a reason why else. nobody goes to Golden Corral after the pandemic. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, so yet another love scene gets a thumbs down from Katie. I mean, I mean it's not. It's, it's a great just, love scene for 13 year old boys. Yes, exactly. and it is the most disappointing love scene. If you're not a virgin. <laughs> if you are a vulva. Like if you have a vulva, you're not interested in this because all it is is like thrusting and kissing and there's no... We don't get any pleasure well, from her look, the side. The idea is that while the kissing is happening, there are parallel things happening, but they can't show you that. Like that's clearly. I mean, in the eighties, the they could have shown okay, you that. I'm just saying. In the eighties, now, no, they could not show you that because going down on a on a person with a vulva in today's day and age gets the MPAA very upset. 
But in the 1980s, like hinting at that would absolutely not have worried them. I mean, to be honest, for me, what turned me off to the love scene is the dialogue before the love scene. Like, oh God, uh, yes, it's so labored. Yeah, like her and and the blue, the blue lighting is. I mean, the, the blue lighting is a product of its time, so I can kind of just be like, hey, it's 1985 when they're filming this. Whatever. Was anyone else offended by the airplane he leaves her? Who folds an air paper airplane like that? <laughs> like, I think we all have a pretty oh basic. God. Everyone makes the same paper airplane. Yeah, it was inventive. He does something that no one's ever made in their entire. My son life. was super into paper airplanes. I bet he never made one to look like so, that. Like, he, he used to just like fold all these wild yeah. paper airplanes and I saw that and I was like, fail. I mean, it showed some effort. He could have just done the classic triangular, yes. I folded a piece of paper yeah. into four that parts. Would have been, and that would have been like, fine. It's like- Plus, with such a class clown that Maverick is, he should know how to fold a paper airplane <laughs> to like throw it at a substitute teacher. But he like wrote, didn't he write her a letter in it? I mean, it's, I don't know. Honestly, I think we're picking on the wrong things here. Her... <laughs> Just mm-hmm. like being so head over heels and like completely unable to separate her. She starts off like, I don't s- date students to then all of a yeah. sudden it's like Tom Cruise has knocked her off her feet so fucking hard that she's going to ride through traffic and almost kill herself chasing him down to finish her sentence and tell her how much she's in love with him. I was oh, like, OK, that's not the most egregious part. The egregious part to me is the scene in the classroom where she's giving feedback mm-hmm to him and and then afterwards when he's like storming out because you didn't tell me i was the best boy in the world (laughs) and she then follows him and says let me finish my sentence but i just didn't want everyone to know i was falling for you that line was just ma'am you could have communicated this like well and also why would anybody chase him when he acts like that dickhead i can't hear you i can't hear you (laughs) my motorcycle cock is too big (laughs) this is 1980s Ugh. Oh, it was it was so like I think she gets one kind of redeeming line in the in the very beginning when she's kind of plays dumb. It's like you're a pilot. Oh, that was great. Yeah, I love that. If if that tone had kept up with that with her character, then it's good character for the totally serviceable. Totally. But it falls off a cliff. (laughs) We could have had that older woman dynamic who's like kind of not taking his shit seriously and like exactly. Keeping him in line with, okay, yeah, but you're not actually that cool. You maybe need to chill out or, a little or bit. Or maybe yeah. like a Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins from Bull Durham kind of thing where she's like, oh, I take one under my wing every year. Exactly <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah I think I, I agree with Rich. I think the fact that she played her cards close to the chest and was waiting when she's like, oh, are you a pilot? Like, because every, obviously every knows, pilot yeah. in that bar has already told everyone they're a pilot like 17 times and they're <laughs> yeah. all in uniform and it's like the most ridiculous shit ever. Also, can I just call out? I may have done this already in this episode, but how much they overuse their call signs, which, again, usually would not be as flattering yeah, as it is. It, it felt like a lot, but I was wondering, like, is no, it normal that for is you not to say, like, normal? I mean, thank God, a couple of times someone does call him Pete. Like, people do throw in first names or Lieutenant Mitchell, the way they would actually refer to them. But the overuse of call signs is super annoying. Where I'm like, no one would call you Maverick this much. When Meg Ryan says Pete, who's I was Pete? Like, <laughs> 
Who's she talking? Oh, Maverick! Maverick! Yeah, That's like when right. his okay. love interest is calling him Maverick, I'm like, what the fuck is actually going on here? Like, that's not how it works. Because again, his real nickname would be Bozo or Bedwetter or something stupid that no one would actually call you in real life. And I will, they- I will counterpoint this. Uh, my my father in law is a retired Air Force. He was a F four pilot and F fifteen E pilot, and his pilot buddies apparently they did just call them by their call signs like my my wife will recount a story where they saw a friend of his in the bx or whatever and he's like hey dog meat how you dog been <laughs> See, that's oh, a good one. dog meter right but that's because <laughs> when you use them in real life it was dead meat something right like but you're that. kind of talking shit to the person right like hey fuck face <laughs> like oh his his nickname is actually fuck face like you're gonna use it as much as you can that's different than like oh maverick it's like every time you talk to him you're that's calling true. him cool yeah. guy like come on yeah and they like, do it like you must call cool. me the maestro yeah and they do it in the military context too like the commander is constantly asking who do we have up there and it's like oh maverick and goose the guy on the radio like the tactical controller is like maverick you need to blah 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 and it's like that's not how you talk to airplanes you would be using the call sign like ghost rider one two is the way that aircraft would be referred to that is the way they would be referred to on the radio that entire time is Ghost Rider 1-2 or whatever the hell their call sign is. It is it is like in, in Star Wars where they do not call him Luke Skywalker. They call him Rebel 1 or, yeah, yeah, or that's whatever. Yeah, that's totally. It is not like this is your designation. Uh, he was within- Red 5. Thank you. Red 5 standing by. Red 5. Yes. Thank you. Right. And look, when George Lucas is writing, you know, call sign usage more accurately than this movie, you got, you know, you got a problem. I'm just saying. Exactly. This is true. What else do you guys want to hit on? If you want to go around, if you had one last thing that you want to make sure you hit on this movie, is there anything that's sticking out to you? Mine is just the, um, the enthusiasm that the, pilot community has for the film other movies where you know you're depicting a real life job it kind of gets shit on like oh they did a billion things wrong you know whatever and it just kind of gets picked apart this is kind of the opposite yes there's still a billion things wrong with it and you can pick it apart but there's so many pilots that came up that saw this and wanted to do this because of the movie people that have just flown they all really embrace it as just capturing the feel of what the job is like even though there's a, a thousand things that aren't realistic about it at all I don't really can't think of another movie that really purports to capture what it's like to do a certain job that the people that actually do that job have embraced it that much. You know, I don't think anyone watches Crimson Tide and it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. We love that movie as submariners. I've never heard that. Maybe maybe that's a take out there, but (laughs) also directed by Tony Scott, by the way. (laughs) Well, and I and I think, Rich, to your point and to add to that and also that is immensely popular with the public entertaining and was financially successful like that combination yeah, is pretty rare and it's every beat every every demographic <laughs> yeah i agree i think for me it's cinematography everybody raved about how how great the aerial shots are in this and i agree 100 percent. like the aerial combat and just the flying in general feels very realistic and pulls you into what the characters are feeling and this is, I think, the only place where the shots on the land are as good as the shots in the air because, like, they really took advantage. It does not surprise me that Tony Scott was like, I will pretend to pay you $25,000 for more time with the Magic Hour because there is so much, so much shot at that particular, like, 
there's about an hour to an hour and a half of sunset that just makes everything look mm-hmm. gorgeous mm-hmm. and beautiful. And I think the most telling scene of it that I can recall off the top of my head is when Maverick is like really in the doldrums about Goose's death and Charlie has moved away and he's driving his motorcycle around and he drives up and sees that her house is for rent that is taking place at the magic hour and it illustrates his despair and frustration while also being super beautiful and well done so I think the cinematography in this just heavily contributed to the success because if this was shot like iron eagle i don't think it would have been there because iron eagle is very Mm. flat it's got that same great aerial footage but on the ground everything is very flat like there's no interesting lighting or camera movement or shots it's all like all right we're gonna put the camera here and look at these people's faces whereas in this they really tried to make it dynamic And I think that succeeds really well. And I think that's one of the strongest parts of the movie that really contributes to its overall success. Because if you don't have these interesting camera maneuvers and thoughtful shot progressions, like the scene in the elevator, where how he shoots it from, we are kind of back when when Tom Cruise first comes into the elevator. And then we are still in that position when the guy walks in front of the camera and we see Charlie move over to the side to kind of like, oh, we're not together. It's fine. Don't worry. Like there's so much being said in this in this camera work that really contributes to the film being emotionally moving that if you don't have that, this is a very tropey film. It's going to fall flat because you need those moments to express the emotions of the film and like set the tension and exacerbate the relationships between people. And I think the other scene is when Iceman comes and not apologizes, but like expresses his sympathies for the loss of Goose when him and Maverick are in uh, the locker room. Mitchell. I'm sorry about Goose. Everybody liked him. I'm sorry. Val Kilmer's acting is so much better than it needs to be in that scene. It is. And how it how it sets it up allows like we're really focused kind of on Val Kilmer's face. That's what's in focus. And we can kind of see him going through this motion of uh, what's exactly the right way to say this and it allows us to focus just on that rather than like if we'd had a wide shot or a, a shot from like the end of the aisle which it uses several times in the locker room scenes so i think the cinematography was just so well thought out for this movie yeah i'm gonna jump on the back of that as well to add that the Editing overall done by Chris Lebenson and Billy Weber really adds to the cinematography. I know there are people that have broken down the editing of the combat scenes to rivet count it and explain why it doesn't make sense. But from a layman perspective, like not being a pilot and certainly not being a fighter pilot, just watching it, I think the same emotional beats that the movie hits with the love scene and with the tension between the characters, etc., it also does in the aerial scenes, both between the high speed opposite direction passes between the quote unquote MIGs, which are F5s if we haven't mentioned that yet, and the Tomcats, and also all the various cuts they did, like, for example... 
the Navy actually fired two air-to-air missiles for the cinematography so that they could shoot those shots, and that was it. So all of the missiles that get fired in the film are different camera angles on those same two shots. Sometimes they're mirrored, and if you're paying attention, you can see it. Every time a Sidewinder goes off, you're like, I recognize that shot. It's just on the other side of the screen, but it's like the same image, right? But overall, considering that they were only working with two missile shots, they did a pretty good job extending that between showing models blowing up, which the models looked way better than an Iron Eagle, by the way. Like, yeah, no, they weren't made of wood. Yeah, there's no model like at any point. wood things just getting like blown to pieces. Yeah, there's no point where any yeah. of these models exploding. I'm like, that's a model. Like it fit. The editing is tight and it's just like. They did their job right, I I think, in terms of the composition and the editing, the lighting, all that stuff. Like, they really sell you the action and the narrative of what is happening between the fighters. Whether the situations are realistic in the first place, like, they go on the one hop or exercise, they're like, the hard deck is 10,000 feet. And then it's like the entire fucking time, it just shows two aircraft, like, flying 100 feet over the mountains, where I'm just like, okay... You know, 10,000 feet is like a lot, right? Like that's two miles up in the air. So they're already, both the instructor and Maverick are well below the hard deck the entire time. Not to mention that the hard deck, quote unquote, represents the ground. If you violate the hard deck in a training exercise, that means that you crashed your plane. There is no like, there is no, that's what it's for, right? It's to give you a buffer because you don't want- For safety. Yeah, for safety. So basically what they're saying is, okay, for this exercise, we're going to be operating, say, between 20,000 feet, that's the ceiling, and 10,000 feet, that's the hard deck. That's simulating the ground so that if you screw up and go below the hard deck, you might fail the exercise, but you're not going to die, right? So for Maverick to be like, well, we were only below the hard deck for a few seconds and I felt it was sick. No, like you can't be underground for a few <laughs> seconds. Like you were dead, right? Like this is the simulation. So like, again. Well, right. But then in, in that instance, how could Jester have gone below the hard deck to get away from him? He's fucking up too. Again, they're, they're both flying all over the, and again, the narrative is not set up in such a way that they go, he's going under the hard deck. That's cheating. I'm going to follow him. And then it shows three minutes of them flying around the mountains under the hard deck. Like that would have made more sense where you're like, okay, the instructor cheats first. Maverick can't resist the urge to chase him. So he's cheating too. And then they have an altercation later where he goes, you failed. You went under the hard deck. He's like, motherfucker, you went under the hard deck first. Like that would have actually made more sense, but that doesn't happen. They're both flying around all over the place, like right above the ground. So anyways, (laughs) my point being the plot and the narrative structure of the flight scenes doesn't always make sense, but the editing is really well done and it looks great and it feels great and gives you the feeling of being in that cockpit. And then the the second thing I was going to mention is some of the comedic bits and probably my favorite one. And one of my coworkers would kill me if I didn't mention this because he quotes this line in the tower all the time. The buzzing the tower scene. Tower, this is Ghost Rider requesting a flyby. Negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. No, no, ma'am, this is not a good idea. Sorry, Goose, but it's time to buzz the tower. With the air boss who spills coffee on himself like three fucking times in this movie is so goddamn funny. Goddamn son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled the fire. Do you snuck those jockeys to the flyby on my tower at over 400 knots? 
my uh he's now a supervisor but one of my supervisors at work but like someone will call in with some bullshit and he'll slam down the phone and just be like i want somebody's butt i want it now i've had it He quotes it all the yes. time. It's so great because he doesn't even say ass. I I rewound <laughs> that part because did he just say I want, I want some, some butts? butts. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this movie got even more gay. Okay. And Tom Skerritt again back to your your, your kind of he's like the dad thing. Like he does, he's not going to bust their ass for that. He just like well that should cover the buzz in the tower part. Then he busts their ass for the hard deck part. The more important part for safety perspective. <laughs> right, for sure. And uh, the implication in the buzzing the tower scene, the first one, is you kind of hear a sonic boom, or that at least you hear a boom, right? And the implication is that right. they're breaking the sound barrier like in front of the tower, which is like ridiculous. <laughs> that would like blow out all the windows in the tower would be like insane. They would never fly again. Like there's no way. But, and I'll try and put this in the notes. If you want to see an airplane buzzing a tower, this happened like 15 years ago, but before my time in the FAA, there is a great video of Oakland Tower here in the Bay Area where I don't know if the pilot asked for it or if the controllers asked for it or what, but an acrobatic plane, a small one, buzzes the tower and they're uh, in perpendicular flight. So the wings are like a knife blade to the ground and they do a pass near the tower. And from the video, it looks like they're way closer than Top Gun. Like I'm talking 20 meters, maybe from the tower. And you can hear all the controllers, like the anticipation. And then you see the plane buzz past the screen and everyone's screaming. Like it was a, <laughs> I don't know if anyone got in trouble for that, but it was close. It was definitely not allowed. So um, yeah, the coffee scene in this just cracked me up. I don't know if there's anything, I, you know, the, the acting in this is a little all over the place, but there are points where I think the acting is sometimes held back by the screenplay. Yes. In that it is mm-hmm. a very trite, tropey mess in a lot of scenes. Poor Kelly McGillis. But there are some scenes where I think the acting overcomes that and is able to, like I said, be better than it needs to be. A lot of the scenes with Val Kilmer are better than they need to be because of Val Kilmer's acting. I actually think that Tom Cruise does shattered man pretty well especially for this era tom cruise yeah this is definitely him stretching his wings in the acting department for a 23 year old yeah he's doing pretty yeah not not bad for the you know doing the the other end of the spectrum where he's like super cocky guy man boy and then the just devastated shell of his former self being and I thought he was pretty good at that. I don't hate Tom Cruise's acting most of the time, but you know, in in this, I thought it was at absolute worst adequate, but most times pretty pretty decent. And now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask, "What was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it?" And Rich, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. Let it rip. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. Yeah, the, um, you know, if you talk about the objective, the objective was they wanted to capture what it felt like to be a fighter pilot. You know, um, the producers had, you know, read an article in a magazine, um, sound like a really cool concept, let's make a movie about it. You know, no other film captures that as well as, as Top Gun. I mean, up until last summer with the sequel, really, you can argue is the only other one that's really done as well. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the objective. 
did it hit that target? Absolutely. Um, you know, shout out to a, a couple of podcasts. The, I've already mentioned the uh, 14 Tomcast. The, uh, there's another one called the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Several others out there. You can find a lot of them. You know, the, they have several guests on there that, that to a man all talk about, you know, how good Top Gun is. And a lot of them were inspired to, to join the Navy and become fighter pilots or, or the Air Force to become a fighter pilot because of the, of the movie. So, I mean, I don't know if you can have a better objective, you know, than that, a better target to hit. Then, you know, hundreds of testimonials of people saying that I watched a movie and now I decided that's what I wanted to do for a living. There's kind of a, <laughs> there's an off quoted, um, kind of wrong statistic that, you know, naval recruitment went up 500% after Top Gun. Um, that's not true. It's more like eight or 10%. <laughs> the numbers don't bear that out. <laughs> so everyone but, was like, um, that still. looks really cool. But I, <laughs> exactly. I don't know if I actually want to, I don't know if I actually want to. Exactly. That. Exactly. But, um, so yeah, I, I think if this didn't hit the target, what would have, have taken to hit the target? You know, I, how, how could you have done anything thing to make it hit more of that target? So did I like it? I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, Thank you guys for having me on. You know, I, the sequel was coming out. It seemed like a good time to kind of um, hit while Top Gun was back in this in this in zeitgeist here. You know, it, it's definitely a film that I, I revisit over and over again. Yes, it's big, stupid fun. And we all have our, our number one big, stupid fun movie. Uh, and, you know, Top Gun's definitely up there and one of my top one or two that, that hit that. It's definitely quotable. You know, even if you're not a super fan, everyone knows Talk to Me Goose and everything <laughs> from the from the movie. Um, it's, it's, it's part of the culture now. Nice. Liam, why don't you go next and tell us your thoughts? So the objective of this film, I, I think Rich probably hit it on the head pretty solidly. I think they, they wanted to make a big actiony extravaganza that really captured aerial combat, some more modern technology than we had in, you know, wings. So, I mean, it's been a while, like since the Howard Hughes days, people have been wanting to really capture dogfights and aerial combat and just flying because it's amazing. And this, I think, is done very much in that same spirit of like, man, we have these cool ass fighter jets now. Let's go ahead and like make a movie about that, which is why that's about where the concept stops. Uh, this is, this is not a whole lot of stake behind the sizzle, but the sizzle is kind of the point. And with that in mind, it's hard to say it's not on target. I mean, you have a movie with sexy planes and sexy people and sexy people in sexy planes. And if that's your jam, then yeah, absolutely. This movie is on target. It, it was a success in most categories that they could have possibly been aiming for money popularity it got oscar nominations the soundtrack was recognized like you know it's it is like you said it's culturally relevant uh i think this i don't know if this is still the case but this had been the only again my my tom cruise trivia rabbit hole uh this i think might be his only film that was included in the national film registry as being culturally important damn but did I like it is a tough question. My answer would have been no. If I hadn't just watched Iron Fucking Eagle. Yes. <laughs> that is why we curate our list the way that we do. <laughs> the lowest of bars. Thank to you, get listeners. Over. You know, it's just it's just the fact that 
it that's what it is. Like if I had just seen Top Gun, I probably wouldn't have been too thrilled about watching Top Gun. But watching Top Gun after Iron Eagle is a remarkable breath of fresh air. And it's way better than covering Iron Eagle after Top Gun. Let me tell yeah. You. Oh, <laughs> I, I was like, well, there's only one choice to be made here. I can't say that I, l- I mean, I liked it well enough. Like when I was watching it, sure. I was on for the ride and there, there are a lot of good points to this movie. I don't know if I'm going to watch it again anytime soon. I'm glad to have watched it because I'm going to be watching the sequel soon because it's nominated for best picture. So somebody needs to explain that to me. Hopefully the movie will do it way that could possibly win best picture, but okay, it's, it's not going to, but it's, it's up for it. And so I'm going to watch all the best picture nominees, but yeah, do I, do I like this movie? No. Am I glad I watched it again? Yes. Uh, would I rather watch hot shots? Also, yes. So this is somewhere in the the very large gray area between Iron Eagle and Hot Shots. Top Gun is nestled like right in the middle for me. Damn. That's a brutal, brutal, vicious takedown. Oh, man. I said I liked it well enough. God damn it. As close as we're going to get. Oh, Come on. That's what, that's, a, that's a win that's, for me. Dan. That's high praise from me. Yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. It's not quite as good as Hot Shots. It's very high praise for me. For this movie, yeah. Uh, Dan, salvage. Salvage what I just handed off to you. you just, what, what, are, just, what are your thoughts? Just non-consensual thoughts about Charlie Sheen is what just came into my mind, which I do not appreciate. <laughs> so, you know. All right. Um, I think Tony Scott knew what he was doing with this. He got paid by the studio to do a job. This was going to be a summer blockbuster released in June or July. It was going to be fun and certainly escapist. He's British. He doesn't give a shit about American rah-rah. But, you know, making it realistic enough, certainly. I think uh, Rich can attest to how many pilots enjoy this movie, despite its little technical flaws. They find that it's overall relatively realistic. Was it like rah-rah Reagan? Uh, Not really. I think we've covered that. I don't think there's anything specific. It's so vague in its... um, international relations let's say that i don't think you can really attribute the good or the bad of that aspect of it to any particular american administration it just happened to come out during the reagan administration was this a playgirl centerfold worthy volleyball scene sure you know uh, including baby oil and the whole nine yards and again tony scott almost being fired for that scene and it's certainly a memorable scene whether you're gay straight or whatever it's like it's a pretty great scene uh and i I won't spoil anything about the sequel, but I like it better than the parallel sports scene in the sequel. It wasn't on target. Yeah, fucking A. This movie was like, what, $15 million budget? Because somehow they got the Navy to give them all this shit for like less than $2 million, which is insane to think about. Because these F-14s were still worth like almost $40 million in 1986 money. So, I mean, you're talking about like, yeah, there's just... (laughs) It's a lot at stake here. Aircraft carriers, all kinds of stuff. So for the deal that they got of the century to shoot with all this stuff, they got a really good deal. So yeah, it was on target. They made almost $180 million just in the US, let alone what they made around the world, let alone what the sequel has now made, plus VHS, etc. So yeah, it's interesting. Again, Rich brought it up before how uh, pilots and people in this profession really like this movie despite its flaws. 
but the general public has clearly come out for this movie and you don't quite have to turn your brain off to watch it. It's not like that stupid or anything like that. Like, yeah. <laughs> Put that on the box. It's not that stupid. Dan Felito. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's totally watchable. The dialogue is serviceable. It's just there's times where it just feels unrealistic. Like, I'm like, all oh, this call sign usage and some of this love dialogue is just not that like Charlie's character is made to look a lot smarter. She's a, a sexy lot- lamp with glasses. Right. But I think Rich is right in the sense that they lead you on that she's going to be a smarter and sassier and better character at the beginning than she ends up being where all of a sudden she's just like at the whim of Tom Cruise's pretty green eyes. And that's like, she's toast, you know, as opposed to the beginning. So yeah, it was on target. It was really successful. I think this is a really, a a film that has stood the test of time for the most part and made it through the ages. The soundtrack, I could not, stop giving praise to this soundtrack if you gave me a sony walkman with a cassette tape i would walk around all day listening to this soundtrack and it'll just make your life more amazing no matter what you're doing whether it's shooting down migs or just gardening you know whatever it is so did i like it yeah i fucking love this movie this is one that you can put on in the background it's just the again i'm not an airplane nerd probably because i do work with airplanes all the time so like i get my fill of it during my work week and the f-14 to be honest i've seen sexier planes that don't get me wrong shut your mouth (laughs) don't get me wrong i like it but it's a little heavy under in the undercarriage and i'm kind of like it's not a svelte looking plane it's like got a lot of crap some of us are a little heavier it's got a lot of external fuel don't fat shame me and my planes she's a big girl man (laughs) the f-18's a lot sexier but whatever it's also newer rich clearly disagrees with me and that's fine i just wanted to throw in <laughs> a comment on the f-14 i do like it and i have some nostalgia for it and the sweeping wing aspect of it is pretty cool so yeah i'm glad we covered this i absolutely knew what i was doing when we did the audience poll of iron eagle which i was pretty sure was going to be mostly flaming hot garbage and we definitely decided to cover that before Top Gun because the other way around would have sucked. Katie, close us out. All right. I think the objective of this film, as we have touched on, I think there's a couple different objectives and it's really going to depend on your perspective. I think for Tony Scott, it's about making a big, stupid, fun movie that has lots of cool airplanes fighting each other and Tom Cruise being hot and tormented. There's a little bit of torment in there. Um, everybody being sweaty. There was so much sweat in this that it was a little off-putting, not going to lie. And then I think there's also this idea of not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily feel overtly jingoistic. It feels like jingoistic almost uh in passing because 1980s america was such a very particular place in a very particular time and using these navy fighter pilots to kind of deify both armed forces and that individualistic 
I guess this individualism that America is so heavily associated with, because obviously Maverick is such an individual. He's going to do his own thing, even if it means he's making mistakes and eventually has to learn how to do his own thing, but not make mistakes. And it kind of really tries to play into a ton of different narratives. And I think for the most part, in the time that it's made, I think it mostly is on target i think it really resonated with a lot of people and obviously not as many as as the u.s military likes to say of course all these people join the military because of you know top gun or whatever but i think most people have seen this i mean probably not at least our age for younger viewers younger listeners maybe not so much but I, i would guess more than one person who was born after this movie was made um, which all of us were born before, even if it's just me who was shortly before, uh, like TBS, like you see this on TBS growing up or or whatever. And I think it really gets people's interest. And I think that hits no matter what. The action is fun to watch and you can kind of hand wave away all of the like, maybe that doesn't work so well. Also, it really wanted to be very cool. I think that was... um the the biggest objective was it has to be so cool like oh my god like all of these guys are just the coolest guys in the world in regards to like 1980s stereotypes <laughs> like val kilmer is the cool like a uh, ski guy who, who's challenging you to ski down the hill to win your girlfriend or whatever right like and how many pop- times did they have to practice the like up high down low behind the back high five before like exactly behind the scenes like the characters <laughs> must have done that a bunch of times just in their rooms like hey man i want to do this new high five like let's practice it a few times right before they're just nailing it on the volleyball court <laughs> Right, exactly, exactly. And Tom Cruise is like the good old boy who's who's doing it for all the right reasons. Like it, it really is like let's show off some really cool people. And it, it in the eighties, it absolutely hits for what was considered cool at the time. Now it's a little like, oh, this is a little dated, <laughs> a little cringe, little cringe. Tim exactly. Robbins is like, I'm glad I never took off my oxygen mask. Nobody exactly. even knows I'm in this. Robbins is like, <laughs> Nobody knows. Um, did I like it? No. Oh. No, I don't like this movie. Oh, oh my so heart. So proud of you, Katie. <laughs> my heart. I have nothing against this movie, but like it just doesn't appeal to me. And I think it's because it is so situated very heavily in this 80s manliness and how little scope there is beyond this is what a man is and this is how men behave and it's it it just there's so little for me to connect with and i don't think it's i guess for me it's just kind of boring like oh yes yay they're doing good flight things gay flights (laughs) oh now they're playing volleyball that's good Oh, now Val Kilmer's being a dick. You're doing so good, boys. (laughs) Yes. Like, there's just so little for me to connect with in this movie because it is so intensely 80s masculinity that it's like, I can appreciate it on a level that, like, obviously this is not a film made for me. And that doesn't mean it's a bad movie, but it's definitely not something that I want to watch again. 
I, I could watch Hot Shots again and be like, oh, no, I really get these because I've seen this twice. But I won't do that because I don't like Hot Shots. I watch Hot Shots part due sometime. But don't. Um, it's terrible. I, I assume so. But yeah, it was just it was exactly what I expected. And something for a very specific group of people that I am so glad that they had their opportunity to see this crazy spectacle. But that spectacle is, despite like the kind of the message that was sent at the time, not for everyone. That spectacle is for a very specific audience. And everyone else is kind of like, I guess I can see the interesting points. Like, you know, you come and you're like, hey, look at all those cute shirtless boys playing volleyball with baby oil on them. Or here's this romantic scene with uh, Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise or whatever. You know, you can find what you like in it. Overall, it's very much geared towards a specific audience. And I am not that audience. <laughs> so for me, it was just kind of like, this is a movie. All right. Good movie, guys. Good movie. We all tried really hard, didn't we? You'll probably be happy to know that uh, I think ever since the film came out at the at the swear jar. <laughs> yeah. At the <laughs> Naval Fighter Weapons School, they have a swear jar where if any of the candidates quote Top Gun, they have to pay into the swear jar. So it's like a thing. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> do, do a zone. It's one of danger. <laughs> so what are we doing next? Next, I think I'm finally going to publish one of my old school veteran interviews that I did two, almost two years ago. Actually, oh shit. When is this coming out? We passed our two year anniversary and we didn't like didn't even talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to release a thing. The two year anniversary of Danger Close already happened because right now we're recording on February 6th and uh, I think the 12th is our two years. So anyways, about two years ago, I recorded an interview with my good friend Tyler, who I was in the Marines with, uh, who did a lot of he was an air traffic controller as well. But he did a lot of training to go out on helicopters and go out uh, in the field and set up airfields and as a part of that and being on flight crew. He had to go through SEER training, which is survival evasion school, where you do a week or two, pretend to be a POW. It's this crazy school. You've heard about it before, but you haven't quite gotten the details on it uh, the way Tyler is able to tell them. He's a very humorous and funny guy to listen to as well. And then him and I, I asked him to pick a film that kind of dealt with things that he had learned uh, in his training, and he picked Behind Enemy Lines with uh, Owen Wilson. Because that involves evasion and rescue, etc. So um, I will finally edit that together and throw that out there for you guys. And uh, I want to give a big thanks to Rich. Thank you for all the research that you've done for the show and being a huge part of Danger Close. And thanks for coming on an episode. Yay, Rich. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Thank yeah, you. it was really great having thanks you on. Thanks for coming. Anytime. Yeah, we'll talk to you guys on the next episode. Bye. Bye. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain Too much of love drives a man insane You broke my will, but what a thrill Goodness gracious, great balls of fire Lana 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 What? <laughs> Danger Zone